Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The, the Iron, Iron List! Shing, shing. It's a noise that we add to the <laughs> podcast. Uh, my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic, and everybody calls me Lord of the Crocodiles. It's only a name. He's actually Lord of the Alligators. Uh... This is the Iron List. This is a monthly podcast where we do a big, epic, best of list where we put all of our collective know-how together and try to come up with uh, what we think is the ultimate series of recommendations for people who are uh, looking for films of a certain type. Sometimes we could do uh, the best films of a certain director. Sometimes we'll do the best uh, genre of something or films about a certain topic. This month, as voted on by our patrons at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, Y- y'all are a little on the nose. Uh, we chose uh, uh, the best dystopian movies. Dystopia has always fascinated humanity. Uh, yeah. The end of the world, or rather, the the perversion of society as we know it. Yeah, there's a difference between a dystopian movie and a post-apocalyptic movie, although mm-hmm. there can be overlap. Uh, but, and there definitely is on my list. Same, you know, same here as well. Uh A dystopia isn't just the future is bad. It's that future society is bad. Future society has gone horribly wrong in some respect. And the the world in which we are, uh, the world we are visiting in a story, film, TV show, book, doesn't matter, uh, represents sort of something to avoid. (laughs) Yeah. Something that we absolutely should not allow to happen to us yeah, well, under any circumstances. Uh, the, the the word is uh, a spinoff of the word uh, utopia. Yeah. Which was the name of a book by Sir Thomas More in 15... And, uh, <laughs> early 16th century. And uh, yeah, it was... 16 XDX. And if, if you look at the etymology of the word utopia, it essentially means like... Uh, has to do with like dream or imaginary place. Yeah. The idea is that a utopia could never exist. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And uh, the a idea utopia is being an ideal, an, society. An, an idealized version of society and utopian literature and utopian philosophy goes back as far as there have been such things. Uh, dystopia is sort of like um, prodding the wound a little bit. It's uh, mm. looking at society, thinking of like the absolute best it could be. How would an idealized society, an ideal society really work? Well, how would and how would a, an ideal society fall apart? How are those ideals actually, in in addition to sounding really really good, how are they also kind of uh, warped versions of our own ideals? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think utopia and dystopia are very very closely related. Yeah. Uh, I think there are some on my list, especially in uh, some of the runners up, that are definitely a little bit of both. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that. Uh, I mean, there's certain uh, stories that tell of future societies in which one society is utopian and another is dystopian, perhaps to create a dramatic or thematic contrast. Mm. Uh, but um, in any case, we are going to be focusing on the dystopias. These are the uh, cinematic visions of society that give us pause and make us worry and uh, ignite our cynicism, skepticism, and pessimism. Mm. And we are going to do our best not to be too deeply cynical on this podcast but we're talking about, uh, well, some depressing visions of the future. <laughs> uh, but I, I will say this. Personally, mm. as a human being, uh, I've seen a lot of crap 
And I don't think I don't think a utopia is something that is we're capable of. However, I do believe that the future can be better than our present. So I'm mm. not going to just flat out say like, ah, yeah, this movie sees a vision of the future as crap because that's what life is, isn't it? Like that's not this podcast. Mm. But we're going to be talking about uh, how these movies reflect our anxieties about our past, present, and future, and hopefully, at least some of them do so in an entertaining way yeah. and not just a scary way. Uh, uh, and, oh, one, one more thing uh, for those of you who may be new to the Iron List. Whitney and I do top ten lists a little differently. Uh, we each have our number one pick. If we had to, if we had a gun to our head, what's the best dystopian movie? We, we have our film that we would pick. Uh, but our number two through ten, we're not going to get too persnickety about yeah, uh, the, the ranking. It's not really important. They're well, all highly recommended. What does it matter if number four is higher than number seven? It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of arbitrary after a while. Yeah, it so can we be have, fun to argue it, but it, we don't yeah. care. So we do have a number one we're going to recommend as the best. But apart from that, it, this is these tend to uh, be freewheeling uh, mm. conversations about yeah. uh, the topic at hand. Right. Uh, I want to start yeah. uh, with one that is... Uh, I guess this one's kind of on the line, so I guess I'll put it like start start the conversation with a movie that yeah, is start the one that's nebulous. A, a little bit more uh, post apocalyptic than it is uh, dystopian, uh-huh. uh, and it's my favorite post apocalypse, or I guess sort of mid apocalypse movie. Okay, and it's Michael Haneke's Time of the Wolf, and I bring it up a lot. I actually uh, haven't seen this one. Okay, okay uh, t- Time of the Wolf. Uh, if you watch a lot of these sort of dystopian movies or these post-apocalyptic movies, think of a zombie movie or a, a, some sort of virus movie, uh, it, it's usually just an analysis on uh, what happens to people when everything's sort of fallen apart. And really the backdrop, what caused all of that chaos, is really unnecessary once you get to that point. Hmm. So what Michael Haneke did was make a, sort of this post-apocalyptic apocalyptic movie where we never learn what happened to the outside world. Yeah. We don't know if there was some sort of political coup, if it was zombies, if there was uh, like a nuclear holocaust or anything. All we know is that people are on the run and they're looking for places to hide and there's not a lot of resources and there's not a lot of places to hide. Yeah, there and are a lot certain of it, dystopian uh, or post-apocalyptic films that want us to be concerned about how the world will end, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in the Cold War. There are a lot of films about oh no, nuclear apocalypse will destroy civilization as we know it and possibly mm. all of humanity. And um, Yeah, I mean, look, that, that's, that, that's something that's on our minds, but sometimes we don't care about that and we want to move on to the next thing. Yeah, well, yeah. and, and w- what Michael Haneke is trying to say is, here's what society would look like when society falls apart. And uh, he... This is... We- even though it's about the apocalypse, it's weirdly Michael Haneke's most optimistic movie in that he shows that people are really kind of falling together in a really important way. Mm. Uh, although the, the film opens with, uh, uh, and of course it's um, Isabelle Huppert, uh, Isabel <laughs> and, and, and you know, a bunch of people of are, are on the run and they try to move into a house and somebody says, you can't come in here and they threaten them with violence. They're just sort of drifting down the roadways talking about how they're not going to find a spot. And a lot of the film takes place at a train station where a lot of people have congregated. The trains aren't running, but this is sort of like a safe place with a lot of, where a lot of people can just sort of gather. Uh, when it begins to rain, people turn their umbrellas upside down so they can capture rainwater. So clearly there's not a lot of water. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of energy. There's a really wonderful scene where a, a young kid is, wants to listen to music on a Walkman 
like a cassette player. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you know, we, we listen, push play, but don't hit fast forward or rewind. We have to preserve battery life. So just take the tape out and turn it with your finger. And if, if you've ever owned cassettes, you know that experience. It's yeah. a very visceral thing. And it is about how hopelessness creeps in, but how people will inevitably gather together again. I know that doesn't sound like Michael Haneke at all, who's typically yeah. a very cynical filmmaker. He's, he's maybe the most apocalyptic filmmaker I can think of, yeah. even when his films aren't about the apocalypse. Yeah, one of my favorite movies of his is called The White Ribbon, which mm. is uh, this little tiny town in Germany, and I think it's in the 19th century, and about how little teeny tiny pieces of resentment between children and adults is essentially laying the seeds for full-blown countrywide fascism. Right. <laughs> and uh, and about how that's just sort of an inevitable evolution of human interaction. Uh, yeah, he, he's not a very hopeful guy, Michael Haneke, <laughs> except in the one which is about the end of the world, weirdly enough. Well, I mean, everyone gets pushed to their breaking point, right? Yeah. So that's not necessarily like a dystopia because it's not about a newly built society, but it is about... A society that's broken. A, a broken society, but it's also about how breaking society is the thing that's required to bring us together. You know, I, I, I haven't seen it. Okay. I, it does sound like it's on the cusp of not counting because mm-hmm. it does sound like the society of the future isn't the worst thing ever, but mm-hmm. again, it is broken. So it, yeah, it is a cautionary tale. I mean, you could argue that, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm just going to have to take your word for it. I'm not going to yeah. fight you too hard on this. I, more than anything. I just want to recommend that movie. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, my first couple of movies, um, I've got movies on my list that maybe you can predict. Uh-huh. Uh, a couple of movies that uh, maybe won't surprise you. I got a couple of movies on my list that might seem like weird choices for a top 10 dystopian movies ever because they are kooky, <laughs> uh, because they are weird, because they have a sense of humor. And I think that's something that we sometimes miss from our dystopian fiction. Uh, is an opportunity to use dystopian fiction as a lens to not only you know wag our fingers and make people scared, mm. but also to make people laugh at the terrible parts of society. And hopefully that will remind us to not let things fall to ruin uh, by because we won't take the wrong things seriously. Is it a boy and his dog? It is not a boy and his dog. That's a good pick, but right. that's not a boy. I consider that more post-apocalyptic than oh, dystopian. Yeah, yeah, right. uh, but I, I did think well, of it. The, there's the subterranean. It's the last society, part of the movie, uh, so I really wasn't thinking that way. Uh, but you know, uh, I, and actually, what I'm going to pick, and I'm going to wait until you finish drinking so that I don't you don't do a spit take. Uh, okay. Escape from L.A. Yay! Oh, I'm good. I'm glad you're you with know, me on I, this. I, I I will defend Escape from L.A. <laughs> Escape from L.A. is delightful. Now, here's the deal with John Carpenter's Escape from uh, L.A. It is a sequel to Escape from New York, which is a deeply cynical dystopian film. It's a great movie. I love that movie. Uh, it stars Kurt Russell as an Snake outlaw named... Plissken. Snake Plissken. Snake <laughs> Plissken. I heard you were dead. Uh, he's a legendary outlaw in a dystopian, fa- fascistic American future in which... The rule of law has basically collapsed, and uh, the island of... It's Manhattan, right? The island of Manhattan? Well, in L.A., it's L.A. No, I'm, I'm focusing on New York. I yeah, want to give a contrast. It's specifically the island of Manhattan. The island it's of Manhattan. Been, the whole, whole island's been walled off. Yeah, and we've given up on New York. New York mm-hmm. is just a den of iniquity. It's dead to us. They've walled it off. They have mined the only bridge out of the, uh, out of the island. 
Uh, but the problem is Air Force One crash landed on Manhattan. <laughs> so now they need to send Snake Plissken. They put a bomb in his neck and they send Snake Plissken into Manhattan and you have like 24 hours to save the president. Before the bomb in your neck blows up. It's dark. It's mean. It's great. And I love it. However, I consider that one more of a straight up action movie than a great dystopian movie. Mm -hmm. Escape from L.A., which got a lot of flack when it came out for being jokier. And it is jokier. And, it, and it's also a straight-up remake of Escape from New York. Oh, it's like, the same the plot, premise, plot, just in L.A. And, well, and also the plot beats are identical. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the scenes match very closely. But they, the, the, I believe that the changes that were made for, for Escape from L.A. are mostly good changes, or at least fun changes. Um, so now, instead of this sort of wicked, fascistic, Cold War... Uh, dystopian American future There has been a regime change Between the two films And now uh, we are being led By a religious zealot Played by the great Cliff, Cliff Robertson uh, who, uh, who predicted That there would be a giant earthquake in Los Angeles, and it would rid us yeah. of the sinful filth of L.A., Imagine and that happens Jerry, to happen. Imagine if Jerry Falwell were president. Yeah, Jerry yeah. Falwell predicted an apocalyptic event that happened, and Americans voted him into office for life. Yeah. That's the future of Escape from L.A. However, and his, his uh, Syrianese Liberation Army daughter has yeah. now run off to Los Angeles and Snake Plissken is hired to go in and get her. Well, he's not hired. He's well, given a he's, deadly he's, disease <laughs> and he won't get a cure unless you save her. Rather, exact he's same coerced, thing. yeah. Exact same thing. Uh, there are two big differences, I think, between Escape from New York and uh, Escape from L.A. When one is, of course, the tone. Uh, I believe their approach to New York was more uh, mean and angry and I think their approach to L.A. was more silly. Why? L.A. is a sillier city. It's just a goofier place. It's a goofy damn place. There's a sequence where Snake Plissken gets kidnapped by plastic surgery enthusiasts led by Bruce Campbell with an amazing makeup job. The and Surgeon General of Beverly Hills. Yeah, and they're going to totally mess him up. Uh, they're, mm. they're way more into basketball, so instead of having a thing where he has to fight a guy to death in an arena, mm. he has to he has to make a basket every, like, 30 seconds or well, he'll die. It's every seven seconds. It's the shot clock. It's the shot clock. Yeah. So he's got to make a basket every seven seconds or he'll die. It's absurd. It's also totally the kind of thing LA would do in a dystopian apocalypse. Uh, <laughs> but what's here's the here's the thing though, and here's the thing that I the other thing about it that I think is awesome is I think the ending of Escape mm. from LA, even though it's jokier, is a lot more judgmental and dark. At the end of the original Escape from New York, spoiler alert, uh, he saves the president, but he what he does is the president is such a piece of shit. That he ends up sabotaging this like world peace accord he wanted to do because he doesn't yeah, want world peace. It's on an audio cassette, yeah. and yeah, he's he's completely jaded with the system, and he just sabotages this political mm. summit. Uh, at the end of Escape from L.A., he sabotages the planet, and he actually sets yeah, off an EMP that completely turns off all electronic devices. On the entire planet Earth. Snake Plissken has seen every facet of humanity in the last 24 hours, and he has found it wanting. And there's something about that, this sort of righteous anger at zealotry, about, uh, uh, you know, fascistic government. And even about the really shitty things we can do to each other when we have no government, when there's nothing mm. stopping us. 
that just makes Pliskin tired. And it just makes him say fuck you to everybody. And it's a little adolescent, but it's also kind of pure. And I really, really uh, like its anger. I think it earns its anger, but it's also really, really funny. And I like it a lot, too. I think uh, John Carpenter is a bit of a cynic. Uh, I think he, he doesn't think very... I mean, look at his movies. Yeah. You know, in Halloween, this semi-supernatural serial killer is just sort of out there. It's not killable. The evil will always exist. Yeah, uh, yeah you look at Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. It's about just a, a, a cynic himself, Snake Plissken, who just doesn't care if the world burns. Uh, a, a film which actually is not on my list, but is on my runners-up list, They Live, uh, is yeah. a very, very uh, cynical film about the way... Uh, 1980s consumer culture is literally mm. sapping our brains. Um, I can't think of maybe Memoirs of an Invisible Man, but I can't think of very many John <laughs> Carpenter films that end, like, leave you with an upbeat message. Look at In the Mouth of Madness, for God's sake. A, a movie, oh, a, bo a book that, and a movie will destroy the world. That's apocalyptic. Prince yeah. of Darkness is apocalyptic. Um, the I'm Thing think, is, yeah. The Thing is very, very apocalyptic. Uh, I would argue positive endings for John Carpenter movies. Mm. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13, the world hasn't come to an end. I, yeah. Some people survive. It's it's a it's a mixed bag ending, but it's not an apocalyptic ending. Yeah, uh, you go back uh, as far as Dark Star, though. It's oh, Dark Star is yeah. really really <laughs> cynical. Uh, Memoirs of Invisible Man is definitely has a happier ending than most. Mm. Uh, Big Trouble in Little China doesn't have a downer ending. Oh, I guess the it has a it has a negative. It has like a creepy stinger, but Jack but Burton will be fine. It's a stinger. It's not yeah. a bad ending. Yeah. yeah, like Jack Burton doesn't kiss Kim Cattrall, but he only did that because he thought it would look cool. Like, um. So there are a couple out there, mm. but for the most part, yeah, John Carpenter's films tend to end very cynically. Um, let's move on to your next pick. All right. Um, well, if you're going to go fun, I'm going to go fun. Yay! Uh, in the future, war is outlawed. Yay! <laughs> and and all, all international conflicts are resolved in the best possible way. That is to say, get pilots inside 30-story robot fighters. <laughs> And have them duke it out in an arena. Everyone gets a dumb one. The movie is Robot Jocks. It's directed by Stuart Gordon. And it's one of the best movies of all time. Uh, I do no, think it's important when we do these types of lists mm -hmm. that we have to remember that it is okay to pick the movies that are silly sometimes. Yeah. They can be brilliantly silly. And Robot Jocks is... It actually made my runners up. It didn't make my okay, list. Yeah. But it totally belongs on now, the Robot mention. Jocks, I, I would argue, might also be a utopia. Because, God, I want to live in that world. But... It, if you look around at the world of robot jocks, it's actually things have run down. It's been oh, it's sort of bad, it's actually. been yeah really kind of racked by war in little ways. It's it's a low budget film, so they get away with uh, what they can. But yeah, you see on the background in certain scene, there's like in certain scenes there's uh, propaganda posters yeah. of how women need to reproduce more. Like mm. it's so clearly. I humanity think, is kind of like wilting. We need to shore up our our numbers. I think the implication is that war has been outlawed because there was probably some sort of nuclear war. Yeah, yeah. there's so, some war that was so bad something that everyone has happened. The entire planet agreed. All right, we 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 fucked this up. We're gonna mm. still be be crappy to each other so we need a way to get our aggressions out we'll build giant war machines and that will give us something to nerd out over we'll combine war and sports no, yeah more or less yeah. And, and of course the pilots are the robot jocks that's j-o-x by the way yes uh, robot the jo way it should be spelled Ro and the robot jocks they, they train and they understand the way these robots work but they're also kind of meatheads because mm -hmm. they're because they're jocks and uh, 
But uh, I, I appreciate that it's really looking at sort of the ravages of war and how the ravages of, ravages of war might actually lead to this weird sort of comic book concept. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my gosh, the world has been racked by war. Star Trek said that the world has been racked by war, which will cause people to innovate in technology, which will uh, eventually open up our path to the stars and, you know, contact with other beings and usher in a new era of peace. Yeah. Uh, most uh, post-apocalyptic movies are about how war has just sort of decimated the planet and there's nothing left and there's only a few people sort of fighting over the few scraps as humanity goes down the toilet. Robot Jocks is the only one that says, oh, there's been a nuclear war. So now comic books are real. <laughs> I don't think yeah. it's the only one that's done Well, maybe that, but... not, but uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's certainly one of them. And uh, I, I just love its tone. It's really kind of jokey, but it takes the science fiction elements really seriously. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, when, when uh, the main character goes over to a friend's house, they say, we're having meat tonight. It's like, what kind of meat? And they lift up uh, the lid on a pot and there's like a single hot dog floating in like a vat of beans. It's like, that's... <laughs> oat cuisine in the future <laughs> and you know people are all like really run down and they're dressed in rags and people are betting on which robots are going to win because that's all they have left in a, a scene where jeffrey combs clearly came in and just like shot for two days because it's just a lot of insert shots of the crowd it's just exciting it's exciting yeah. to watch the the stop motion animation on it's the robots so is really awesome there's there's a couple the I, design I, on the robots is really fun i miss stop motion when it was used in action movies it's been a while since like the only like stop motion action sequences mm. we've had in a while were in like kubo and the two strings which has some cool stuff in it uh-huh. but like when we had like robot fights in movies for a while there they were stop motion fights the final fight between RoboCop and RoboCop 2. Yes, that was the name of the bad guy in RoboCop 2. <laughs> RoboCop 2. It wasn't about RoboCop. It was about RoboCop 2. It's a great movie. Uh, it's underrated. But uh, that fight <laughs> between the two RoboCops, that fight rules. It's also like the last third of the movie. It's, it's really, really long. It's really long and badass <laughs> and like well choreographed and the stop motion is really convincing. That, that ending kicks ass. And Robot Jocks... Just these giant towering skyscraper robots, like pulling chainsaws out of their crotch so that they can kill each other and flying off into space and punching each other in space. And everyone downstairs and like, you know, at, on Earth in the mm-hmm. bandstand is just like, well, I can't see shit now. <laughs> Here's what I will say Robot Jocks is a great idea, and the action is brilliantly realized. The actual characters and plot are kind of crap. Oh, that's fine. It's, it, 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 I'm not saying they, it's a bad movie. I just took it per- off my top ten. Perfectly functional for the kind of B-movie it is. I, I think, here's the deal. I, what I love about Robot Jocks mm. is the premise and the action and the way that the action was realized on film. Okay. What I don't love about Robot Jocks is just how corny... Uh, uh, kind of what I like about it. I, corniness, but, uh, I like it. Right. I like it a lot. It's one of my favorite movies of its ilk, but... I don't, I can't really put it in a top 10 just because I think sometimes the writing and frankly the sexism of the story uh, yeah. just, just pulls it down a little bit. Just It just it could have been a little stronger when it wasn't actually showing robots fighting each other. Mm. It makes it an honorable mention. I like it a lot. So that's just why it's not in my top 10. Uh, since we're staying in Goofy Town... <laughs> we'll get to the serious stuff. We will. We, start, we started off with Michael Haneke... Come on, we'll get all there. Right, right. Uh, while we're in Goofy Town, I want to stick up for what I think is one of the 
absolute most underrated dystopian slash post-apocalyptic action movies. Uh, It's a movie you may have heard of. It's a movie you may not have heard of. And if you have heard of it, you might have assumed it sucked because of its title. But let me assure you that if you actually sit down and watch Cherry 2000, you're going to have a great time. I haven't seen Cherry 2000. Oh my god, you would love Cherry 2000. (laughs) Here's the plot of Cherry 2000. It's the future. There has been some sort of war and there's like a wasteland uh, throughout America. But it is the future and things are quite futuristic in the far off year of 2017. Uh, love it, gotta love it. Uh, there's... Escape from LA takes place in 2013, by the way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah we're we're fine. Uh, but uh, uh, David Andrews uh, plays a, a, a waspy yuppie type who works. I'm trying to remember if he works at like a recycling plant, which is like this huge deal mm. in the future. Um, but uh, the thing is, is that he doesn't have like a girlfriend or a wife. He has a sex bot. Who he loves. He loves his Cherry 2000. That's a great model of sex bot. Everyone agrees. Mm. But uh, one night he comes home and he's having a great time with his sex bot. And the sex bot was in the middle of cleaning everything. And every the whole kitchen got really sudsy. And she broke down. And the problem is they can't fix that sex bot. Because the only like pieces to fix the sex bot are mm. in the wasteland. <laughs> so... After briefly, briefly trying his luck at uh, what romance is like in the future, which is you go to a singles bar with your lawyer and Mm -hmm. your lawyers hash out what your first date is going to be. Like romance is dead. Mm. Human connection has completely petered out and people are more disconnected from each other than ever before. He hires a tracker played by Melanie Griffith to help him go through the wasteland, fight off a whole bunch of road warrior maniacs, and fix his sex bot. Uh, And along the way, they run afoul of a dystopian society of self-help nuts in the desert who are led by Tim Thomerson, who is awesome in it. Like, he's, like, got all of his guys, and they're dressed like crazy people, and they're covered with guns and shit. And he's talking to them like he's talking to them at, like... A seminar. It's like, okay, they're out there. We need to kill them, but we need to be pleasant. Pleasant but firm. Everybody, okay? I want positive smiles. Come on! It's just this weird extrapolation of where they thought the future could go in the 1980s. This is a 1980s movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, it came at a time when uh, um, HIV was starting to. Uh, really creep into the world consciousness, uh, which took way too long, of course, but by the time it did, people were starting to worry about will this permanently affect dating? Will this permanently affect human sexuality? Um, And uh, so it deals with the anxieties of that, and someone who has completely given up on that, who then needs to start learning to take a chance on humanity again. Mm. Uh, And on top of it all, it's about all the yuppie Reagan-era bullshit, as if it just entirely took over and kind of reveals it to be kind of what it always has been, a kind of cult mentality. Mm. This cult mentality of... uh, uh, you know, never-ending positivity and uh, corporate bullshit. So, it's a fun film. It's full of action. Melanie Griffith is really, really funny in it. And um, it's weird. You've never seen a movie with that plot, have you? Have you seen a movie with that plot? I defy you 
to tell me you've seen another movie with that plot. It's a distinct film. <laughs> anyway, I hope you check it out because it's a it's a real blast. Uh, what's your next pick? Uh, I'm going to recommend uh, High Life. Oh, okay. Just from last year, the Claire Denis film. Interesting uh, choice. High Life takes place aboard a spacecraft. Uh, something really horrible has happened to humanity, and now we're out, or the entire planet Earth, that is, and now we're sort of headed out into the stars to look for a new place to settle. Uh, however, the way in in the, the rules of High Life, the way we've chosen to go about this is to populate this spacecraft with ex-cons who are looking to uh, get out of prison. Yeah. And good golly, Claire Denis has nothing good to say about humanity. <laughs> the society aboard this star starship is essentially one of, how to put this, sexual fascism. Uh, that is to say, not sexist uh, fascism, although right. that's certain, there's certainly an element of that. It's more about how human sexuality is kind of our undoing in a lot of ways about how um you know, on board uh this space vessel there's essentially uh from like the movie sleeper and orgasmerator it's like this little booth where you go to get your ox off yeah uh, and this is kind of the only outlet people have and when we are allowed to indulge in whatever kind of let's just say it masturbatory fantasies we want our minds essentially stop working. And I think Claire Denis is not necessarily saying something really bad about human sexuality in general, just the way we've allowed technology to overtake it. So Claire Denis' comment here is that is essentially one about internet porn. <laughs> if, if you can stay online and see enough pornography until you're, you know, just to fill your eyeballs 24 hours a day until you're dead. Yeah. You're not really doing a whole lot. In fact, society is kind of falling apart in a lot of ways. That's one element. The other yeah. element I like about mm -hmm. it is that uh, you, ha in order for to keep like the life support systems going on well, the I ship, I was going to mention this as well. Yeah, in yeah, order to keep only... the life support systems going on the ship, you have to prove that you worked today. Yeah. So when when you're not being distracted by the orgasmerator, you have to do your job, and your job is essentially proving you're worth living. Yeah. So there, There's there this... is this weird kind of bureaucratic. Yeah, uh, elements to it as well. Yeah, it, 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 on the ship, whoever's whoever the captain is has to go into the same little booth every, once every twenty four hours and just say, "Here's what I did today. Don't turn off the life support, please." Yeah, and boy, does that feel like kind of on the nose. And you think about so many people who feel like, hmm. oh, like do people really deserve enough money to live? Like, enough money to pay their rent and their bills mm. and buy food for their family? Sure. Or because they only contribute, say, mm. making fast food, do they not deserve to make so little that mm. they'll never really emerge from that economic doldrum? Yeah. This, this idea... It's pretty close. Th this idea that, that hard work equals worth... Yeah. And, and if, you're, if you're not making a lot, well, clearly you're not working hard enough. And, and that... You know, and that you're never allowed to take a break. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're never allowed a day off. There is no day off. There is no downtime. There is no mm. respite. There is no rest. You absolutely have to work every single day. What's interesting about it, though, is that I feel that the person in the film, Robert Pattinson plays the lead in the film, um, he achieves over the course of the film something akin to enlightenment, I think. 
No, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But I think he does that actually by embracing that system and by finding some purpose in that system. Mm. That's one of the two reasons why I didn't pick High, uh, High Life. What the other one is uh, because it's in space. It's a bit more of a microcosm than I would argue in like an entire society. Mm. But it fits. Uh, I'm not going to like object and say like you shouldn't have picked this. It's just mm. why it never occurred to me to put it on the list at all. Uh, but that's an interesting pick. I like that. Mm. Thank you. You're cool. Thank you. Well, I, again, these lists do function as a, a bit of a, a, a list of recommendations more yeah. than sort of lists of poster for posterity. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, it was one of my favorite films of last year. So I really want people to, to seek out High Life. I think it's really, really terrific. Uh, it says a lot of bad things about humanity, but it does say that we're capable of more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to uh, stand up for a film. And a lot of these films are films that we talk about a lot or have mm. talked about recently. Uh, we've both gone to bat for robot jocks on many an occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm going to talk about a film I can't recall the last time we brought it up in a podcast, uh, which is a bit mm-hmm. of a shame because although it's considered kind of a mixed bag, good stuff in it, bad stuff in it, um, over time I am infinitely more impressed with Steven Spielberg's AI artificial intelligence. I'm very, I'm deeply ambivalent about this movie. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, AI artificial intelligence takes place in the well, mostly takes place in the near future, uh, where uh, artificial intelligence and and robots, animatronics, uh, have uh, become more commonplace. They have become a different, a kind of working class, uh, and yet they are, of course, treated as though they are inhuman. But the thing is, is that they are increasingly more human than ever before. And the protagonist is a, a robot child played by Haley Joel Osment, uh, who has been very specifically designed with the ability to love and love unconditionally forever. Yeah, the, the opening scene, uh, William Hurt plays the, the robot scientist in the movie, and he yeah. says that he... And robots are already real at this point, but he says that robots don't feel. They can't feel love, so he works on this program that essentially allows robots to imprint. Yeah. And Haley Joel Osment plays the character, the one robot who knows how to do that. Yeah. It's like the the one that can imprint. Yeah. Uh, but the prob- like, well, of, of a model. Yeah. There's others. Uh, the, the problem is, is that he has been given to a couple who decide, eventually, that although the mom kind of loves this kid... Uh, well, they, she, they she, bought the kid when their own son ha- goes into a coma. Yeah. And, and then they and, decide, well, you know, yeah. just to sort of stay sharp and yeah. think about our own son more and think about having a child around the house, we'll have this like substitute child. Yeah. And then the mom gets decides to uh, activate the uh, program that the allows the printing program boy to actually like the robot to be more than a robot mm. and imprint upon the mother. Really massive bit of Haley Joel Osment acting, by the way, here when he like turns on and like all of a sudden his performance just shifts really subtly. Really great stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, problem is, is that the kid wakes up from a coma, mm-hmm. and now they've got this unwanted robot child, and the robot child is incapable. You could destroy it, but at that point you're kind of destroying a person, and you can't turn off that program. So all you can do is abandon a child. Well, it's a robot child, well, they could, but that's all you can do is abandon it. They could also, you know, take the robot apart, but uh, but, that, she, but they don't want to do she's that. She's so attached to the robot, she doesn't want to disassemble it. So she so, treats it like a dog, and she it's like old like, yeller, like brings just, it out to the woods and, and just, sets like, it out. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 inhuman, mm. is what it is. And 
over the course of, of uh, uh, the child's journey, it encounters different facets of how humanity treats robots. It runs into a sex bot played by Jude Law. Really great performance by Jude Law, I think. Jigolo G- Joe. <laughs> yeah, Jigolo Joe. That's how you go. But uh, he also runs into a really horrifying uh, a scenario in which humans are destroying robots because they see them as a threat. They see them as less than. Mm. Um, and I do believe that Spielberg is making some very, very clear parallels here between all the other times in humanity's history when we have dehumanized people mm-hmm. and destroyed them because we don't want to lose our whatever level of dominance the people in society have. So over the course of the film, the the child keeps looking for love, his mother, someone Mm. who can make it turn into a real boy. And what I think is really, really interesting, I think puts this movie over the top for me is the ending that everyone hates (laughs) because there's an ending of this movie and it's just the boy like praying to the blue fairy forever until his battery dies. Mm. But at the actual end of the movie, and again, spoiler alert here, uh, humanity is dead, and civilization has been taken over by robots that have surpassed us. They mm. do not share our predilection for fear and uh, uh, antagonism. And yet, this last vestige of humanity, this young boy, all it has is regret and loneliness and even if we give it what it wants which is like a memory of its mom that maybe Mm. it could have this it's fleeting and pointless and humanity fucked everything up from the beginning (laughs) there was nothing humanity Mm. did right other than create the possibility for a better future for some other species it's one of the most deeply cynical movies I've ever seen on that Um, scale and I kind of love it it's weird and not everything works but Boy, is it a big swing. It, it's a big swing for a filmmaker. We were talking about how John Carpenter's movies are all kind of inherently cynical, even yeah. if they're fun, uh, apart from Big Trouble in Little China. Not, that one notwithstanding. Yeah. Uh, I think Spielberg is a very optimistic director. Yeah. I think he always has good guys win. He's very good at sort of adventure and triumph. Uh, one of my favorite dystopian movies might be Minority Report. Yeah, great movie. That might be his most cynical movie. I think, uh, you know, uh, even at, you know, at the end of films like Lincoln or The Post, he, he does sort of make an argument that the good will eventually out, yeah. that, that justice will prevail, that the system is in place and it will work. Yeah. Uh, or no, you know what? The, the other cynical film is uh, Bridge of Spies. I think that one's also pretty uh, I don't think it's deeply cynical, cynical but it is cynical. It, it's, it's a little bitterer than a lot of his, his hmm. um, more recent films have been. Uh, AI is bitter in concept, but it's... It's like uh, somebody was trying to make a nice, really bitter cup of coffee, and Spielberg took it away from that person and said, here's a cake instead. Well, because and what happened such, was... the tone is really all over the place. There's a lot of excellent moments mm-hmm. just kind of mashed together in something where I think the filmmaker was trying to make it into something that it wasn't. No, I, well, what's interesting about the construction of this movie is this was originally, before mm-hmm. he died, this is going to be a co-production from Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg. They developed this story together. Mm. Um, Which is weird because they are like polar opposites in terms of their style. Weird and fascinating. And I, and I love that about this movie. I love that it comes from two completely different places. And I think that contrast between optimism and cynicism mm-hmm. is not only at the heart of the production of the movie. And you're totally right to see that. I agree 100%. But I actually think it's at the heart of the story. Mm-hmm. I actually think that here is this innocent child who can only see things with uh, love and hope. And every single thing he confronts mm. is horrible. Mm. 
Yeah. Even the mother that he loves abandons him like he's less than a person. Mm. I think that contrast is key to the film. I think the film is more interesting that way than if it had been purely cynical or purely mm. optimistic. I think that struggle mm. is literalized in the production of the film. Again, I think it's a oddly structured film. Mm. I think there are performances and moments that don't work and are weird. Yeah. However, I do think as an overall bizarre macro experiment in sci-fi filmmaking, it's really very fascinating and interesting. And I, I couldn't not put it on the list. I just think right. it's too. It, it it deserves credit for it. I think it's too weird, and I think it, I think it deserves a reevaluation. I, I think I, it deserves yeah. to be revisited. I feel like it just when it starts to approach a really interesting concept or idea or style, it'll do something like crack out a CGI Robin Williams. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's like, okay, we're going to have this really kind of dark uh, gladiatorial arena where we're pitting robots against each other in combat. Uh -huh. And it's like, okay, that's supposed to be really dark, but then there, there'll be like a cameo from Chris Rock, like uh, but, wisecracking. Uh, hang on, though, but you got to remember, think of the metaphor here, mm. and we've got the, like the only prominent like black actor in the movie mm. he's being slaughtered by all of these white people who think he's less than them. Like, it's pretty right there it's it's right there but it doesn't play very well and there, there's like some fascinating imagery but it, it's like spielberg just doing the spielberg thing i feel like this was uh this was proof positive that spielberg was kind of losing interest in a lot of his uh, genre trappings yeah he didn't really want to make science fiction movies anymore and it feels like well, he didn't want to make was a movie that he didn't on. really want to make he made minority report and war mm. of the worlds after this but those are way more cynical movies even where the world's with its mm. happy ending and everything mm. is really bleak for most of it. Mm. Um, I think AI is an example. AI, well, yeah, I think AI is an example of Spielberg wanting to start losing the cliches. Yeah, and I think when you look at his work afterwards, even though sometimes they veer too closely into a mega happy ending. Um, I think Spielberg became a more interesting filmmaker in the 2000s. Maybe mm. he didn't make as many classics in the 2000s, but I, I think his I think his movies are better. Frankly, I think his uh, movies yeah. are generally better. However, I do think that it's hard to top his early like holy shit run mm. of. I mean, like not for, that not there there were others in this pack, but when you look at. Uh, Jaws, mm. Close Encounters, E.T., e Raiders, Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, all, like, all these like big. He, he kind of created what we yeah. think of blockbuster. But though. when you yeah. think about it, those movies, uh, probably less so. Jaws and Close Encounters, I think, are more mature in their construct. But those movies are very, like, proto-America kind of fantasies. Uh, and I think he was interested in deconstructing that in the later mm. part of his career. So uh, whether or not he was working within the trappings of what we call a genre. Mm. Um, in any case, I think AI is a fascinating film, and I think it's a really underrated, and I want to put it on the list. Because right. uh, you know about some of the other films, and I think it's uh, worth sticking yeah. up for some weird ones once in a while. All right. Um, hmm. Well, how can I segue from AI? Don't uh, segue. Just okay. pick a random thing. Fine. I love Dark City. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Dark, Dark City uh, is a really wonderful film from the late 90s, which takes place in a world that is now a noir universe. It takes place yeah. on Earth, question mark, where... Yeah. A, a mysterious city, a, never mind where. Yeah, where it's never daytime. Mm -hmm. And every night at the same time, it's always midnight. Yeah. And every, so every night at midnight, but then the clock sort of resets and it's still close to midnight. Yeah. And every night at the same time, everybody in town passes out. And this mysterious group of 
uh, bald, white-skinned people in trench coats and hats. They look like Nosferatu so, yeah. if Nosferatu was a bad guy in a in like, in like a, a, like a, a Marlowe movie. Film. Yeah, yeah they, they, they kind of slink out into the city. And they inject people's brains with this mysterious fluid, and then they vanish into the shadows. They call them the strangers. Well, they also do things like rework the architecture, yeah, and then, too. Yeah, like, as, it's as, incredible as, looking. As they work, uh, the, yeah, the, the city sort of morphs around them, and then they vanish into Ugh. the shadows. Everyone wakes up, and they all now have a new identity. Yeah. What the hell is going on? That's awesome, That's by the way. That's an amazing set. And by the way, the visual effects in Dark City... Mm. Maybe not so much like the weird psychic fight at the end, but all of the stuff with the tuning when they're changing the mm. structure of the world around them. It's so fucking cool. <laughs> it's such well, a cool looking movie. It's, it's not only this weird, interesting sort of science fiction premise where uh, humanity is just sort of at the whims of these weird, mysterious beings. It's also a meditation as to what you are as a person or yeah. do you equal just the sum of your experiences? Because it turns out these weird creatures uh, have are kind of studying humanity and are using experience to define what characteristic what character really is yeah but at the same time it's also this kind of meta comment on uh the way we remember cinema how films put into our heads the way the world works and mm. how films are essentially a gigantic remix as to what we remember of the past. Mm -hmm. So we're using a lot of these film noir trappings to comment on our own version of what we think the past is. It's kind of an idealized and kind of nightmare version of the past at the same time. Let me ask you a question here, because this mm. is the reason why I didn't put Dark City on my list. I love this movie, by the way. This movie rocks. Yeah. What does it have to say about society and civilization? What makes it dystopian mm. and not merely creepy and mysterious? Uh, well, big, uh, what, what I was just saying about identity. Uh, this yeah, this idea that, that humanity... That, I don't see that as being about society. Well, but th there are some like, people who have seen the truth. There's like a doctor who's working for them. There's a few people who have like glimpsed as to what the actual truth is. And yeah. they realize that this city that they're living in is just this sort of big front. And if you sort of look at, look around at society, how much of this is just a construct and it, it, it does go down this really kind of dark existential path. And I think that's the whole point of, of dark city Yeah, is, you know, the, the dark city within our minds. <laughs> uh, if I can, if I can say pontificate. something, pontificate yeah. br briefly. Um, yeah. no, I, I think it, it really does sort of, uh, reveal that, our version of the present, our version of the future, it isn't as we're not in control of it in as in control of it as we think we are. Yeah, it's out of our hands. I uh, guess we got a little general as an overall like social comment or a political comment. Uh, that's, well, my, that's my that's my only more, issue. With it's more it. of a philosophical comment. That's my point. Yeah. It's, it it feels more dreamlike and nightmarish than it mm. does necessarily. When you think about dystopian fiction, I tend to think about, like, what's the corollary here? What are we commenting on in our yeah. society and our history or what are our anxieties of the future? Yeah. And Dark City takes place so out of time, yeah. so out of history. And even those mysterious creatures who are uh, manipulating people's minds and their environments for their own ends. Um, I know we've ruined some endings here, but I don't want to ruin Dark City. It's so great. Um, but even them... We really don't get a sense of like how they're running things. Mm. We just get a sense that the people inside feel trapped. And there's something kind of generically Kafka-esque about that. 
Well, Kafkaesque is a good good yeah. word to describe that. Yeah, you're just sort of trapped within this great bureaucracy that you don't understand. Yeah. I think that's fine. That's that's a that's good not, good place to start a movie. No, it's not a bad place to start a movie or anything. I just I, when I think about if you want to put it on the list of the best sci-fi movies ever, hell yes. If you want to put the best movies of the '90s, hell yes. Mm. Best dystopia movies, it makes my runners up. Ah, mm. uh, that's that's where I stand. With me, okay. You you may stand there. Thank you. That's what I shall do. Watch Dark City, regardless. <laughs> However it's wrong I may be, it's an excellent movie. I don't oh, think you're. Oh, wrong. Oh, I don't think you're wrong. Just explain oh, why it didn't make my personal oh, okay. list. Uh, okay, moving on. How do I? How do I follow that up? Um, let's talk about another movie that is uh, actually something that I only recently encountered, and we talked about it very recently on another podcast. But I am endlessly impressed with George Lucas's THX one one three eight. I, I dug this too. This is on my uh, on my runner's up. Yeah. Um, so before George Lucas Im- imagined this fantastical past uh, full of great analogs and allegory, uh, before uh, George Lucas talked about the immediate past and damn near present of American graffiti filled with nostalgia and fun, he told a story about our future in which he clearly is not looking forward to it. No, in fact, it's a reason it, he escaped into the past. I think it's because he saw he, he made THX one one three eight, and he's convinced it's happening. It, it wasn't until I saw THX eleven thirty eight that I really realized that uh, George Lucas has made no film set in the present. Yep, he has no interest in the present because I think he feels in the present things are kind of falling apart. Yeah, uh, and we we actually talked about this on a, a recent podcast of ours, episode zero, where yeah, we've been reviewing the films that. Uh, led to Star Wars, the films that inspired Star Wars. Yeah. And uh, th- this relates, obviously, mm. although it isn't obviously one of the films that inspired Star Wars because it's just another George Lucas film, but mm. we talked extensively about this on our podcast about, is it 2137? Is that the name of the, the um, short film? Uh, 2187. 2187, yeah. sorry. Uh, it's uh, t- three back-to-back, that's an eight. Mm. Uh, but there's an experimental short film he was inspired by called 2187 that led to a lot of the construction of the Force in Star Wars and how it connects everything. Mm-hmm. But what I think is really interesting is in THX 1138, he looks at the various interconnectivity of things, mm. the wonders of human interconnection, uh, the expansive possibilities of scientific mm. uh, uh, exploration of our society, and sees that all of that shit's going to be bad. Mm. People are going to disassociate from one another. People are going to continue to drug themselves in order to escape personal anxieties and get through their day jobs. Uh, people are going to escape the world and ignore just how mechanical and crap it becomes. And mm. a lot of political theory, I find, uh, boils down to we are all looking at the world in a very personal way. But if we look at it as a giant organism or as a giant construct or as a giant mm. machine, you see that it's breaking down. You see that there are pieces that don't fit and pieces that are getting way too much maintenance and other pieces pieces that are getting uh, absolutely annihilated constantly. Mm. THX 138 stars Robert Duvall as uh, a cog in the machine who at one point just stops taking all of his meds and starts realizing that he's unhappy, that he's lonely, Mm. that he isn't having the sex that he likes, that his job doesn't bring him any meaning. I mean, it's, it's leans very heavily on brave new world. Sure. um, Of course. Which it's pretty much just a film adaptation of brave new world. And you think about it. Good one. It's a good one. Yeah. And the way that George Lucas films this as though it is all 
everything humanity and everything that we do is nothing more than a collection of data everything mm. is just a collection of security footage everything is a collection mm. of bells and whistles and lights for ev- everything from happiness to religion like mm-hmm. these are all just parts of the mechanical process even the part where people who actually sh- uh, uh, shirk the system are forced together into one place it's not a prison that's too human they're just trapped in a white void mm. because they're disconnected from everything. No one's listening yeah. to them. Nothing matters. It's such a downer of a movie, but it's an effective movie, I think. I think it's a kind of movie that is legitimately afraid of the future. It's legitimately afraid of where civilization can go if we lose our humanity, if we lose our hope, if we lose our uh, connectivity to each other. And I think it's one of the reasons why he fled to the past mm. <laughs> in an attempt to inspire the present, I think, and to remind us of the interconnectivity of things in a positive way by, by a fairy tales like Star Wars. Um, so it's a fascinating film. It's a great film. The actual, the director's cut version of it, I think is pretty damn good it doesn't like do all these weird things that mess with the text like star wars did uh it's an excellent it it adds some cgi uh not not, not to hurt hurt it though yeah it it doesn't feel so completely out of place as some of the cgi in the star wars special editions Mm. um but yeah it's an excellent film and it often gets overlooked because people like star wars so damn much please see thx 1138 yeah and uh speaking of being lost in a button pushing bureaucracy it was only a matter of time before one of us mentioned brazil hey Uh, (laughs) terry gilliam's brazil uh is Again, really heavily inspired by uh, a lot of dystopian fiction, like 1984, like Brave New World. Uh, In this one, uh, Terry Gilliam imagined the world to be overrun with, essentially, the the bureaucratic paperwork. The system itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, The red tape is the thing that will choke the world. Uh, You can tell uh, Terry Gilliam hates filling out paperwork. (laughs) And you know what? I hate it, too, so I really relate to this movie. (laughs) Uh, yeah, in in the future, uh, Jonathan Price plays on just sort of a button pu- button push and meat bot who works for a big corporation, uh, and his actual job is really unclear. Uh, there's pipes everywhere, and because of a little clerical error, someone is taken away and murdered by the system mm-hmm. because he was labeled as a dangerous criminal, even though it was just like a glitch in a machine. Right. And uh, it's not until he begins to investigate that a glitch in the machine can result in just a lot of misery that he realizes how horrible this system is. Also, he's been having dreams of becoming an angel and fleeing and destroying the machine and flying away. Uh, It's visually innovative uh, in a way it's completely unique. Uh, It's becomes really kind of nightmarish by the end where things just kind of turn into torture and, and mayhem. Uh, Robert De Niro appears in the movie as sort of like this rogue who's living on the outside. His fate is completely fitting for the world of Brazil. He is eaten by paper. If you if you remember Robert De Niro's scene in that movie yeah, where he's like great. like some papers stick to him and you realize that like the the literal paperwork is reducing his body to nothing and he just sort of blows away. Yeah, I mean if there wasn't a better paperwork for what the future hold a better symbol for what the future holds that's being killed and eaten by paperwork, uh, it's. It, it is indeed incredibly cynical. It was so cynical, in fact, that uh, Terry Gilliam was forced to make a second ending. Uh, his, yeah. his film was recut numerous times. Uh, if you get the Criterion edition, it has the numerous cuts that you know they had to go through to get to the one that Terry Gilliam, Gilliam actually liked. Uh, is that the best cut? I actually haven't seen all the cuts. G- Gilliam's cut is the best. Okay. Uh, there was an international cut that's okay. There was the, love, quote, Love Conquers All cut, where it's actually kind of a happy ending. Mm. 
the bullshit that, that cut. That one's, yeah, it's clearly a bullshit Yeah, it's the Blade cut, Runner you know. cut, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, that ending is not good, but the, the one that Gilliam ended up uh, approving of is, is the one that actually works. I feel like, I mean, Terry Gilliam's productions have all been cursed. He He's a notorious dickhead. Yeah. And uh, he... Um, he has always had trouble securing funding. Mm-hmm. His vision is really complex. Uh, and sometimes just an actor will become sick. Uh, in the case of the imaginary of Dr. Parnassus, his lead actor died during production. Yeah. Uh, sometimes he brings it on himself. Uh, sometimes it's just fate. So yeah. Some, so he's always had trouble. I feel like Brazil might've been the one time once all of those extra cuts were out of the way where he finally got what he wanted. <laughs> and you know what? It works. It's a really great disto. It's like the, one of the er examples of dystopian cinema. You know, I haven't seen it in so long that I didn't feel comfortable putting it on my list, but I was pretty sure you would. Okay. So I'm just, I'm not, yeah. I'm going to be a little silent about it other than I really like it, mm. but I haven't seen it in a really long time. So, uh, next up. So Terry Gilliam, uh, is obviously approaches his cynicism about the future with humor. Mm. I know you think I'm going to say idiocracy. I'm not. I'm going to say Death Race 2000. (laughs) I think that sometimes when we talk about the low budgets Mm. and the silliness of the Corman school of filmmaking, whether they were made by Corman himself or merely uh, produced by Corman, that we miss the cinematic purity of some of these Corman films where we don't have a lot of money, so we just have to be honest. We just have to just throw ourselves into it and hope that sheer force of personality will get us through. Hmm. Paul Bartel was one of those filmmakers. <laughs> Paul Bartel is a great filmmaker who's sadly no longer with us. And he yeah, rest was in peace, Paul Bartel. He was a wonderful character actor, very, um, very funny. I'm waiting for the Bartel Warrenoff biopic. Oh god. Just like, Some ugh. independent filmmaker is gonna make that. It's gonna be the toast of Sundance. But the, no one will see it, and whoever played Mary Warrenoff will win Best Supporting Actress. Elizabeth Moss. I can Mar- see it. As Mary yeah, I can see it. That's pretty good. Uh, and I don't know. Tom Hardy is Paul. Who plays Paul Bartel? I don't know <laughs> who plays Paul Who's Bartel. It, who, who would be a good Paul Seth Bartel? Seth Rogen is going to try. He'll try. I don't think he'd be bad, but I yeah. think I think Elizabeth Moss is going to steal the movie from him. Anyway, Paul Bartel made a lot of kooky films. Hmm. And uh, it, I think arguably his kookiest is a film called Death Race 2000, which was remade as a film called Death Race starring Jason Statham. It's not awful, but it's nowhere near as good as the original. Mm. It's the year 2000. Mm. Whoa. And America is run by a shitty president known only as Mr. President. And the world is kept wrapped by their entertainment. This is something that we actually haven't talked about too much, uh, is dystopian films which talk about how entertainment will become the opiate of the masses. We will be hypnotized Mm. by distraction. And therefore not focus on what's actually happening, which happens all the time. It's pretty much the history of government. Mm. Oh, you don't like what Rome is doing? Have a gladiator tournament. Boom. Enjoy. In Death Race 2000, it is a transcontinental race from one end of America to another by a variety of colorful creatures and supervillain types. Uh, David Carradine plays our main hero, Frankenstein. Uh, oh, who does who does Sylvester Stallone play? Stallone plays Joe oh. Machine Gun Viterbo. <laughs> yes, Mary Warrenoff plays Calamity Jane Kelly. Martin Cove plays Ray Nero, the hero Lonigan. Fun character actors playing up fun wrestling types. Hmm. But here's the thing with this cross country race: 
it's not like the road warrior where it's all like through a desert and they're all fighting each other. It's through cities and towns and each racer gets more points if they kill people. In particular, like, like there are like, and there are people, the world is so overpopulated and the world has gotten so cynical that like people who work in like old folks homes have started wheeling the old folks out into the street so that the street racers can just take care of them. We don't have to worry about them anymore. Boy, is this movie cynical about America. <laughs> Boy, is this movie have it's, a problem. But it's really playful about it's it. It's so yeah. playful and funny. The, the other main protagonist uh, um, is... Um, uh, the, 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 the people who are trying to basically start a revolution against the president, but every time they do something successful, the president just blames another country and mm. nothing happens. So they're trying to sabotage the race, but it turns out that maybe Frankenstein has a plan of his own mm. and it's comic booky and silly and weird, but all of its anger comes from a real place. Every time it points its crosshairs at something real, mm. It feels like a real statement. Even though it's goofy, even though it is low budget, the cars look like Mario Karts. Like, the cars look ridiculous. They look great. They I look like, great. I like the design of those cars. I like them too, yeah. but they, they look like parade floats. They're like, they're not like. When you think about what Paul W.S. Anderson did to Death Race, and he made I never all the cars. Saw that version of Death Race. It's not the worst thing ever, but the whole thing is he made the cars all look like Road Warrior cars, all yeah. battle beaten and no these are wrestler cars these are wacky racer cars they're trying to distract you they're trying to like get in your face with like theatrical characters and craziness and every time that we stop looking at entertainment we might see what's actually going on because we make our entertainment to obfuscate or distract us from what's really happening when mm. people talk about oh i want to go to see movies to turn my brain off Maybe you shouldn't be so eager to do that. And Death Race is one of those movies that plays with that. Here's an idea. Leave your brain on. Yeah. And you can enjoy a film like Death Race as goofiness. But it also is a real film with real thoughts and ideas. And it's so much fun. I was torn between this and another Corman film. <laughs> and it's gonna end up on my on my honorable mentions, but I almost put Teenage Caveman on here, <laughs> which I didn't want to do because I didn't Teenage want to... Caveman is a stinker. Teenage Caveman is a badly made film, mm -hmm. but it actually presages everything we like about the Twilight Zone in a very upfront, in your face way. It just happens to be a very bad movie. It's, it's, it's not the worst thing Corman ever did. It's bad. There's like a forty year old Teenage Caveman in it. Like it's, it's also called Teenage Caveman. I I love that title. You know what you get with a title like that? And then they sucker punch you at the end with political commentary. I admire the audacity of something like yeah. Teenage Caveman, but I couldn't in good conscience put it on the list. So I put Death Race 2000. You learned too late that man was a feeling creature. <laughs> That's from It Conquered the World. A movie I also like. Which gives away the ending right in the title. <laughs> it's well, the, if, It's the beginning of the movie. If, if, you're, yeah, I know. If, if, you're talking, uh, if you're talking about the way uh, media is used to sort of warp our brains and damage society, I will talk about idiocracy. Please do. Uh, idiocracy isn't so much about how entertainment has dumbed us down, but it does make the uh, argument. It was made during the Bush years when, mm. like, there was a rise in uh, sort of 
I guess the, the way to put it is idiot friendly media. Mm-hmm. Where there was anti- t- TV, outright anti intellectualism. Yeah, a lot of anti intellectualism. A lot we're still of living. And, and the idea was that uh, people who are dumb are going to be able to breed more than people who are wise or learned. And as mm-hmm. as such, it envisions a future where everyone's just stupid now. And of course, it is essential. It's from Mike Judge, who made mm. Beavis and Butthead. And, and of course, that isn't actually how that works. But it's a it's a comedy. Uh, no, We're going to let it slide. It, it's a comedy. It's it's the commentary that that Mike Judge is making, and uh, it of course is a, a big excuse to make a ninety minute stupid joke. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think it really has a lot to say about the way uh, media affects our brains. Uh, in the future, the big TV shows are Ow My Balls, and the movie, <laughs> and, and the and the most famous movie of all time is just called. Ow. Uh, and, but at the same time, uh, what, what's really going on here is, uh, and you can see why this film wasn't advertised a lot, is because the real culprit here is advertising. Yeah. Uh, there's a character who, in, in this movie, every time he says something, he ends a sentence with, brought to you by Carl's Jr. <laughs> it's like, because he gets like a, a little money. He gets money, money every like, time he says it, yeah. It's a good way to make a lot of money, brought to you by Carl's Jr. <laughs> And yeah, never everybody's just sort of distracted by the language that was sold to them essentially by Madison Avenue. And mm. there's this big argument uh, in the White House when the main character is frozen in the present and wakes up in the future. He's just an average guy, but now he's the smartest person in the world and he doesn't really know what to do with that because he's just he, sort of an average guy. He just has a little common sense. That's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah, he's, That's he, all he's got. He's not brilliant. He doesn't really know how yeah. to traverse this world. One, one of the big plot points is all the crops are dying because they figure well, it's like a version of Gatorade. Like whatever, like well, Gatorade, Brondo, Brondo, it, yeah. Brondo. It's got electrolytes. It's better than water. So if we, we figured if we put that on the crops, our crops would be better. And yet somehow our crops are dying. Mm. And the dude's like, "What about water?" And they're like, "That stuff in the toilet." Yeah. <laughs> and it's just that's it. That's his whole contribution is what if we put water on plants? Mm. That's all he's got. He's not that much smarter than that. <laughs> but it's smarter than it. But what the I idea love, is, that yeah. Why are they watering it with Gatorade? No, because it's got what plants crave. They buy into those advertising <laughs> slogans, yeah. and in buying into this version of the world given to us by advertising, that the world is really simple. Yeah. That a simple product can solve all of our problems, mm-hmm. and that we actually don't need to think or work. Those are the messages given to you by commercials. Yeah. And I think idiocracy is ultimately making a, a comment on how Madison Avenue mm. is the thing that's encouraging us to not think. What I love about it, I'm glad you picked idiocracy. Mm. I put it on my honorable mentions because I figured you'd pick it. Mm. Um, and, and so far, I'm two for two. Oh, you, uh, you, you got me pegged, what I, can I say? But, but I do love this movie a lot. It's really, really funny. What I think is so insidious about idiocracy mm. is that it is what's right there on the surface. So often when we talk about dystopian films, we talk about like, oh, yes, there are these uh, secret cabals and sinister societies and people working from behind the scenes to keep us all mm. robotic and placated. And uh, there's this fantasy that we have that someone smart is in charge. We assume they're evil, but that someone smart is in charge. Somebody, somebody sinister who's thought, thought this out. There's a really good TV movie, made my honorable mentions, uh, called Harrison Bergeron. Uh, starring I've, Sean Astin. I've read the story, but I haven't seen the The, the story the is really, really short, and the movie expands on it a lot. It's a good movie, and it's worth tracking down, just not top ten worthy. Um, but it's all about how in the future, uh, everyone has, like, a chip in their hand that keeps them at, like, no. middle intelligence. It's, it's, um... Like, 
They're they're not they're not able to have seriously passionate emotions. They're not able to have seriously interesting mm-hmm. thoughts. What there's an there's an opening scene in the movie. It's really really clever. Where um, it's a teacher in a high school and she's passing out all like the the paper, the book reports that they did, mm-hmm. and it's like uh, C, C, C plus getting better. F, see me after class. Harrison Bergeron, what are we going to do with you? Another A+. Plus. Will you ever get it right? Because you're not supposed to be too smart. And Well, what- the uh, I, I have a, a big issue with Harrison Bergeron. Yeah. Because it it's ultimately uh, sells a philosophy that I don't really agree with. Well, it's, it's It's a hugely libertarian story uh, yeah. in, in that sort of Ayn Randian sort of way. That the... Those that are exceptional are being kept down by like evil government conspiracies. See, I don't think I don't think the movie makes that argument in the end. I think I think okay. the story does. I don't think the movie quite does because the movie ultimately argues that keeping people uneducated can only be done by people who are educated. If we all get stupid, mm-hmm. we're going to end up in idiocracy. So the idea is that there is a secret cabal of intelligent people who are well-educated, who have access to all the great works and things, and they're just not giving that to people. They're giving people shitty television. They're showing mm-hmm. them ass <laughs> or whatever. And what Harrison Bergeron re- this realizes over the course of the film, because he gets recruited by them mm-hmm. to secretly rule the world, uh, is that the problem is that people are conserving in like intellect people are conserving knowledge mm. and if we actually educate everybody and we improve people's access to art and humanities and actual like the 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 capacity to expand their awareness beyond whatever their little bubbles are maybe the world will improve mm. That's not purely libertarian. It's uh, it's in there though. I grant you that. I, I, I got that's something from the movie, not from the short story. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The movie's a little different right. because the movie goes into well, how would that society work? And the movie argues it had to be run by intelligent people. It's not a great movie, but it's pretty good and it's interesting. And I and I think it's one of Sean Astin's better performances. Um, but what I love about *Idiocracy* is that it argues that there is no sinister cabal. We did this to ourselves. There's no, yeah. there's no super intelligent person running things. Conspiracy theories are attractive because they make it seem like the world makes sense. There's order to conspiracy yeah. theories. Yeah, conspiracy theories usually look at something that is chaotic and terrible and say, oh, well, in my head I can make this make sense. It's like when we look at a comic book and it's just like, wait a minute, how come Spider-Man can do this in this comic book, but in that comic book he said he couldn't. Mm. I know. It's because that one issue of Doctor Strange, (laughs) you assume the writers are more intelligent and not that the solution is they didn't care. Mm. And I think that's something that we have trouble thinking about. Like, we have trouble... Everyone always talks about... We're we're uncomfortable with living in a world of chaos. We're living in a world of chaos and we're comfortable living in a world of stupidity. We're uncomfortable. People like to think like, oh, yes, Trump is doing this very clever thing where he's distracting us. Like, no, that's just what he does. That's mm. just who he is. You can call it smart or stupid, but it's not really calculated. He's been doing that his whole life. People are just doing their shit. What Idiocracy argues is that people just doing their shit will eventually lead to people doing dumb shit all the time. It's deeply cynical. But there's something really righteous and chaotic about just saying... Our, our dystopias will not be the result of a conspiracy. That our dystopias will be the result of us being dumb. 
Yeah. And I yeah. respect that. That's something I really like about Fahrenheit 451. Yeah. Uh, you look at something like 1984, that is about shadowy, intelligent people who are keeping people, uh, keeping the world in control. Yeah. Uh, we, we never, never spent time with them, but that's what's going on. It's the government's controlling everything. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 is, takes place in a world where uh, books are illegal. Uh, they're seen as suspect, hiding these secrets and knowledge. It is this anti-intellectual thing. But just like an idiocracy, it never came about. Like, it explains in Ray Bradbury's mm-hmm. novel that, that that didn't come about because of some conspiracy. The government didn't say, no more books anymore. Mm-hmm. Eventually, people just stopped reading, and they became kind of taboo. Yeah. And people agreed to make them illegal because they didn't like them anymore. It wasn't because somebody was controlling something. Yeah, agreed. Um uh, that said, uh, the 1984 film version of 1984 is on my list. Oh, is it really? Uh, well, yeah. Uh, well, let's, we skipped one of mine, but whatever. I'll do oh, two in a row. No, I'll do two in a row. You already, you already did the segue. All right. What's well, 19, tell me about I've actually never seen this version of 1984. Uh, it's, it was directed by uh, Michael Radford. It was uh, made in celebration of the book. It was made in 1984. Yeah. And, uh, if you're going to put out a movie well, about adaptation of 1984 and 1984 is coming... Do it, it in 1984. 1984. Like why, why advertising uh, is everywhere. It's on your checks. Why is Denis Villeneuve doing Dune? Well, I want to see his Dune, but he should make a film version of 1984, frankly. In, in that would be really yeah. up his alley, yeah. Uh, but yeah, in 1984, it takes place in a world where Big Brother, this very friendly uh, government mascot, is there for you. And that, of course, is reflective of the way fascists like to present themselves. The yeah. This idea that... They are the only ones that can solve the problems, but now the fascist has been replaced by essentially an advertising figurehead. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's kept down, everybody drinks gin. Uh, the the one main character, Winston, however, is... Uh, he's a little bit of a rebel. He keeps a book hidden. He uh, has learned of this sort of underground that's trying to sort of break out from under the thumb of Big Brother. He's the protagonist of Teenage free. Caveman. Well, I suppose so. There was happiness. Oh, bite me. There was not. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he ends up, uh, you know, sort of falling in with this sort of outsider group. And he learns not Teenage to... Caveman, Teenagers from Outer Space. I don't know. Oh, Teenagers from Outer Space. Yeah, that was what I, I totally ruined send, my own joke. Send you back for torture. Yeah. You'll take, take care of the gog and uh, nerd. Why are there so many teenager movies in the 1950s? Oh, wait. It's it's almost like teenagers were emerging as a demographic in the 1950s in post-war consumerism culture. I digress. Uh, Tell me about 1984. (laughs) Well, if you haven't read the book, it's one of the best uh, science fiction novels of all time without hyperbole. Uh, George Orwell's version of the future kind of set the stamp for what dystopias have to look like. And I think this film version captures that pretty well. Uh, in terms of its dreariness, uh, how grimy everything mm. looks, how pale and unhealthy everyone is, and how freeing it is to get out of there, only to realize, kind of like in The Matrix Reloaded, yeah. that uh, this propensity humanity has to rebel against uh, society is just another part of the machine. Yeah. Uh, that was it's, that was it, my favorite part of the Matrix sequels. Yeah, where when they revealed that, like, yeah, you've rebelled against us a bunch of times. Yeah, yeah, it's what you do. We factored it into the program. I, I wish they had continued with that in some that way, was but such, they, that they, should, they dropped that idea. Entirely. That should have been such a mind blowing twist, and yeah. it just didn't read. Yeah, just because yeah. those movies, the sequels are so unfocused. But There's boy, was that a good too, idea? Way too much in them. Yeah, it's such a good idea. Damn it! But that's something taken from Orwell. This yeah. idea, of, idea that the underground is actually also part of the machine. Uh, and of course Snowpiercer it, has that as well oh yeah a little bit yeah, yeah the idea that every once in a while we let you rebel a little bit to get out of your system mm. and then we just stamp you right back to the back of the train mm. 
Snowpiercer is not on my list, but I do like it a lot. I, I, I'm not so big. Yeah. Not, not so big a fan of Snowpiercer. I think it it plays as blunt. like a, a good. It might have been a good short story, but as a feature film, no. Okay. And, and now it's a TV series. Oh God, we're just gonna I keep hear, on going on with this. I hear thing. they turned it into a cop show. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. Oh no! <laughs> There's a mystery on the train. I love Davi Diggs, but no. What are you doing? <laughs> Uh, no, but this this film version of 1984 uh, is is uh, the best version of the book we've ever had on film. Uh, yeah. we've, we've only had a couple, but I think it really kind of captures something really essential about uh, our kind of inherent cynicism about the systems that control us, mm-hmm. about how the government really is into perpetual war, how the government wow. really is trying to suppress very actively. And there's really, in George Orwell's eyes, no way to fight that. Yeah. Uh, that you will be tortured, you will be eaten by the machine because the machine is bigger than you. Yeah. And you are, your mind is going to be beaten down and at the very end, you'll, you're going to love Big Brother. Uh, golly, I love that book. It's, it, it hurts my heart <laughs> to read it, but it, you know, it affected me really deeply when I read I was, I think I was in my like early 20s when I finally got around to reading 1984 and I'm so glad I waited until I was in my early 20s. I think I've had a, if I read it when I was a teenager, I wouldn't have really got it. Yeah. I wasn't quite sophisticated enough. Uh, and yeah, this this film, the Michael Radford film, it has John Hurt in it as as the Winston character is really, really wonderful. A cute little aside, uh, the leader of the underground in 1984 is named Emmanuel Goldstein. In the movie Hackers, that is serial killer's real name. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> serial killer spelled Ma- like Fruit Loops. Yeah. Uh, the Matthew Lillard character, he says his name at one point, and it's Emmanuel Goldstein, who is the leader of the underground in 1984. And it's a uh, cute, cute little reference. And sure enough, at the end of Hackers, serial killer gets to be the face of the revolution. Yeah. 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 Cool. That's a fun movie, Hackers. I like <laughs> a little, Hackers. A little look. smarter than it gets credit yeah, for. Yeah, a little, a little bit. Uh, anyway, you you do your. I'm gonna do. I'll do. Because, I'll do two yeah. in a row. I'll do two in a row. Um, here's a movie that I probably should have talked about earlier because even though we're not ranking these, the later in the list they come, the more it sounds like I'm vaunting it. Okay. Uh, but this is um, this is a movie, or rather a series of movies, uh, that when they were revealed to the world, when people started to like become aware of the concept. It's like Night of the Living Dead. Like, when Night of the Living Dead came out and everyone's just like, oh, oh, we should put those monsters in everything. (laughs) Like, it took some time, but eventually that just became this accepted possible apocalypse that eventually all of the dead will come back to life and try to eat us to the point where we don't even question it anymore. We don't have the, we don't ask why or what it means. It's just this, we assume in the back of our heads, we have plans for the zombie apocalypse. So when The Purge came out, and it revealed that in this dystopian future, I didn't pick the first Purge, by the way. Mm. When the Purge came out and revealed that there is a dystopian future in which the American government has decided that for one night a year on a holiday called the Purge, all crime is legal. And ostensibly, the rationale is because we all get to get it out of our system and then we'll be more moral for the rest of the year, which is on the surface just a flat out exploration of the hypocrisy mm. of political thought. Yeah. Or at, well, least, and, or at least certain varieties of political mm. thought. Um, but as the series progressed, they got deeper and deeper into what is that actually doing? What is that actually well, saying? How, how, how is society how does that, functioning? Yeah, how does that how does that really benefit society and, yeah. or, and or, how could this possibly have come into play? Right. 
uh, the first purge actually does a pretty damn good job of showing how it happened, mm-hmm. how like it would start off as like a really questionable exercise, but how they actually manipulated the findings in order to get the political response they want, much like a lot of people would do to yeah. any poll would just try to make it look like it supported whatever ethos you pre-exist you mm. previously had. But what we see is that over the course of the purge movies, uh, the purge exists for a variety of reasons. One, the rich don't get purged. Mm. The rich can afford to, to hole up in their big ass bunkers for the whole night and not come into contact with anybody and just not have to worry about it. The poor cannot. So who is being killed the most? The poor. Mm. The, the, it's a matter of population control. That's a huge, huge part of it. It's also systemically racist because mm. who has the most money? The white people. The white people. It's also it's also just badass as well because <laughs> by the time we get to the third film, which I think is the best one, The Purge Election mm. Year, that's the, the official one that I'm picking, although I'm kind of picking the whole franchise. Um, the Purge Election Year just comes flat out and says everything. Yeah, says the quiet parts loud. It it should have been the first. It should really be the only film in that series. I think I I think uh, I think the, they're just the I think they're just out of order. I think yeah. it should have been like the started with the purge anarchy just to introduce the basic concept mm. because that's just a kind of a badass action movie version of it. Yeah, the purge election year establishes the actual politicians involved and how people are using incitement to violence, incitement to riot, incitements to mob mentality in order to manipulate politics. That's what the purge election year is very directly about. And also in the midst of this purge. Uh, the people who are trying to fight the government say, oh, we have a rare and unique opportunity on the night of the purge to actually take over the government or at the very least fight back. Yeah, That's a very thoughtful film about what happens when just you remove all the r- rules and laws in society and whether or not we have a moral obligation to keep our morality if there isn't actually a system in place to punish us. Mm. It's an interesting film. It's smarter than people give it credit for. Um, I think the first Purge film, not the first Purge, but The Purge, the one that takes place in a house with Ethan Hawke's family, mm-hmm. that should have been like the fourth film after they lose steam. After they lose a lot of budget and yeah. they don't have any new ideas. Yeah, that should so. have been the fourth one because that's actually a, a good idea after we've established The Purge is to see what the rich are doing in all of this time and to have that taken away from them. That doesn't have the impact that it should have because it was the first film in the series. So I recommend if you watch The Purge, watch like The Purge 2, 3, f- maybe 1 and then 4 are interchangeable. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter. But I think The Purge 3 is kind of the best example of it. It's the one that is the most in your face because it's not a subtle concept. <laughs> Idiocracy isn't subtle. A lot mm-hmm. of these movies aren't subtle. The Purge Election Year is about anger and it's about how people manipulate anger and how people use violence if not directly then indirectly in order to get what they want and exploit people right. and expo- and let people exploit themselves just by saying like well I can do it so I will yeah that's, that happens that's a lot of the problems in society just fall into that it, it deals with this thing that we're seeing a lot of actually right now yeah. like the purge election year is is, is really topical really really topical it's also on my list by the way oh uh, good but, yeah uh, the <laughs> Uh, this idea that uh, you are f- free to do whatever you want. This uh, notion, this sort of the way a, a lot of people in America have twisted the, the 
definition of the word liberty yeah. uh, has, has really kind of harmed us in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. uh, we're looking right now at a lot of people who are looking at a public health crisis and are protesting the safety measures. Yeah. And for... That's nonsense. For the freedom of what? Being served in a restaurant? Not not serving in a restaurant, but no, being no. served in a restaurant. Yeah, you want you uh, want the working class, your support mm. class, the people who mm. you depend on but give no shits about and don't care if they die. You want them to go back and work to make your life easier. Mm. You don't and, actually... You don't care. What this, about their liberty? What about life? Yeah. Well, liberty and, and, and the pursuit and, of happiness. And this is, of course, yeah. It's life comes old, before liberty on that list. Being sold under the auspices that liberty is this thing that everyone should be able to have. I should be able to do whatever I want without fetters. Now, of course, if you uh-huh. read uh, actual like American early American political theory, that's not what a liberty meant. No. Read, read the Federalist Papers at some point, and liberty was essentially the the freedom to the freedom to access to the things that can better you. Yeah. Uh, it's actually a lot. Liberty is a lot about government aid and list and you know no. having the government play a really active role in society. Uh, it's not the opposite. It's not about be doing whatever you want, but mm-hmm. the purge takes that to its uh, you know, logical extreme. Yeah. I should be able to be allowed to do whatever I want. And here the government is letting me do whatever I want. I can kill and if the, I and, want to. And yeah. of course the idea is, but we're, we're going to let you do whatever you want, but we're taking away a lot of the creativity. We're only selling the purge as you can commit whatever crime you want. So go out and do violence. Yeah. Go out and be, like distracting basically do violent parties basically mm. don't actually aim that violence at anything useful don't mm. actually like well, don't well, don't, don't take this opportunity to like clear out like the banks of various corporations through hacking they never mm. talk about that plot point because everyone's so focused on yeah I, but I can shoot out. guns in public well and it's it's not it's not even like stand on a building and throw feces at somebody. You know, it's never something like just really completely absurd and disgusting. Yeah. But it's always that, violent. My point is that the people who are taking place in the purge and the purge movies mm. aren't actually taking advantage of the opportunity right. to change anything. Mm. They're just looking at what can the government give me that I can have for selfish reasons. Mm. And if the government actually asks anything of me, fuck the government. Mm. It's enormously hypocritical. These movies, I think, are the like reve- George Romero zombie movies yeah, of our they're, generation. They, they're revealing a lot about the hypocrisy within yeah. a lot of American thinking, and, yeah. uh, and, and they're, they're blunt, but they don't have to be they're subtle. Blunt, they're blunt, but they're uh, that third Subtlety one especially is, is really smart. I, I, I think the first one is actually a piece of crap. Like it is a really interesting idea, yeah. but it's so badly filmed and so badly written, it's, you can just kind of dismiss it. I, I, I generally agree. The, the second yeah. one is yeah the same sort of thing in an urban setting. It's more just more broadly focused, which I yeah. think is it's, fine. It's the Escape from New York version. The like pur- it's yeah. it's mean spirited mm. and it has thoughts in its head, but it's not really about those. Thoughts. The Purge election year finally gets to the the core mm. concept of this idea, of and this I think. Series, and, and I, I think, think the first purge does as well because mm-hmm. they finally really talk openly about the uh, the racial element yeah, that goes yeah, into yeah. this kind of uh, persecution mm-hmm. and oppression. And uh, so I think the movie's really underrated the first purge, but I think the election year is still the best one in the series. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so that was okay. So that was on your list. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll I'll move on. Because I'm still behind you then. Uh, my next four are all cinematic classics. I know I've had a bunch of debatable stuff, but I just these four are holy <laughs> shit. So I saved them for the end. Um, and uh, I know I talked about Death Race 2000 as like a really cool chase film and how it's not like Mad Max. You know what is like Mad Max? Mad Max Fury Road. I actually had trouble picking a Mad Max. Uh, it's, it's, again, this is dystopia or post-apocalypse. Well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I would argue uh. that 
three of the Mad Max movies are dystopian movies, and one of them is just post-apocalyptic. Okay. I think Mad Max is about the actual downfall of civilization. There are still structures in place, mm. and we're seeing them collapse in front mm. of us. Like, Mad Max is a cop. I, I haven't seen Mad Max. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's better than, you know, a lot of people just say, oh, you don't need to see it, just focus on Road Warrior. But mm. when you actually see Mad Max, it's really good. Right. Um, but yeah, that one isn't, it's not post-apocalyptic yet, it's mid-apocalyptic. Society's falling yeah. right in front of us. So there is a bit of a dystopian element because government can't save you. Road Warrior is not dystopian. Road Warrior is nomads in the desert fighting over oil. And it's awesome. Mm. It's a great movie. It's not really dystopian. Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome is dystopian because it is about uh, how uh, mm. Tina Turner is trying to create a new society based on the kind of uh, class systems that destroyed society in the first place. Um, it's a mixed bag movie. The first half is way better than the second, but it is still cool. I haven't seen the third one either. Yeah. What? You never saw Beyond Thunderdome? No. Oh, weird. Why is that weird? I don't <laughs> know. It was on TV all the time when I was a kid. No, I just never, never bothered. It's, it's neat. <laughs> I right. think you should see it sometime. It's, it's. I'm, I think it's the least of the series, but it's really neat. I'm sure it's fine. I saw the Road yeah. Warrior and yeah. thought that was okay. Just the first half of of Beyond Thunderdome alone is worth the price of admission. The second half right. is okay. It just okay. peaks early. Um, but then Mad Max Fury Road comes out, and Mad Max Fury Road is definitely both, because although in many respects it's a big chase across the desert, constant stunts, and those stunts are fucking amazing. Holy cow! Mm. Wow! Just thinking about it makes me make that noise. But it is actually, and in a very subtle way, because they don't have a lot of actual like free time to really explore the ins and outs of the society, it is very, very much about the society that has arisen from the wreckage of humanity and how it is run by misogynistic assholes who believe in keeping resources from the people uh, in order to create a cult. Mm. And Morton Joe is a cult leader. He has convinced yeah. people, much like any cult leader, that uh, death is mm. noble. Warriors, you are all warriors, even though there's no particular reason for you to be. But you're all warriors, and that's the coolest thing ever, and dying for me is the greatest thing that you can do. That's Morton Joe. And also, uh, all women, we, we, we keep them in a vault, and we just... They're, they're, we, we treat them like they're less than human mm. And the beginning of uh, Fury Road Is we start with the rebellion We don't start We don't see a lot We don't need to see a lot we, All we see is the vestiges of it We see the mm. chains that have been broken free from And through that And a lot of various subtle work In terms of production design uh, And uh, uh, really impressive performances Throughout everybody We see the extent to which The various oppressions of a Morton Joe's regime have completely overtaken the society and it's the only thing that really really matters and the only way we can break out of it is by basically hitting people over the head and getting them to realize that there's another way to look at society mm -hmm. look at the other Morton Joe runs water look at the other like societies that exist bullet farm <laughs> like it's all these just these same basic macho evil things that we've been relying on this entire time all of society has been based on violence and scarcity and the idea is Mad Max Road is about running away from all of that trying to find a utopia realizing that utopia is literally impossible it literally does not exist and then deciding am I going to die in the desert or am I going to run right back and face everything and actually try to change something mm -hmm. So, 
it is about things. And I could go into great detail and you're all bored with it because you've heard me talk about Fury Road a million times. But <laughs> on top of everything, it's also one of the coolest action movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Top five coolest action movies ever made, minimum. Maybe top mm-hmm. three. Okay, mm-hmm. top two. <laughs> but, but it's fucking amazing mm-hmm. and it is absolutely one I think I think it is also a dystopian film that isn't being post-apocalyptic okay yeah that's you, fair you, you don't t- you're not entirely with I, me on I this? think it's writing on the line but if you'll let me have uh, Time of the Wolf I'll let you have yeah that's fair enough okay right. well let's move on to another one of, your lo- one of yours yeah. oh, well I only have two left so what do oh, you, you only got? have two because yeah. okay. you, you took the purge from me oh I, I <laughs> could have sworn All I, right. I stepped on your toes I, and then you took one from me so, I, yeah. I had uh, my, is there something okay hmm I've been I've, writing them I've, down, and I see okay. three that are missing, but I, okay. I have, I not, have, I have nothing to add to Mad Max Fury okay. Road. You've said it all. It's, okay. it's, it's an okay film. All right, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Is RoboCop on your list? RoboCop isn't on my list. What? Yeah. RoboCop belongs on your list. It's cool. <laughs> I, I love RoboCop. Well, one of the things that we... One I, of the things I, we I just d- didn't make it on there. One of the things we haven't talked too much about in these dystopian films is... Mm. Uh, we talked a lot about governments mm. and oppression, but we haven't talked a lot about capitalism. Uh Idiocracy was about advertising, but we need to talk about how the idea of pure capitalism, of competition, Mm -hmm. that if you can afford to buy something, you deserve that thing and Mm -hmm. you're the best person to have it, and how that can completely undermine society. And that's what RoboCop is about. Mm -hmm. RoboCop takes place in the near future in Detroit, where the city has completely collapsed. There's no money. Mm -hmm. There's crime everywhere. It's Reagan's America. It's oh, yeah. very specifically Reagan's America. Very specifically. And the police department has been privatized. Every time someone talks about privatizing a part of the U.S. government, like they talk about privatizing the post office, mm. I think of RoboCop and how well things went. <laughs> because the idea is when you privatize a public work, when you privatize something that is supposed to benefit everybody... You're, you're, you're concerned you're, about profit. You're, you're not concerned handy, about doing handy, the job. You're definitely handing it over to a really nice person. Yeah. <laughs> the whole point of police officers shouldn't be to turn a profit. If someone you know, if someone you know is killed, you shouldn't have to pay the homicide detective to do their job. Mm. That's something that should just come part and parcel with living in a society. Mm. But OCP is just like, how can we make money off of this? Mm. Well, there are all these cops... And they all want also, money. And we have access to all of this, like, surplus military yeah. equipment, so but we, have, we may as well. We have all of these cops, and they all want money and benefits, and wouldn't it be better if mm. we literally owned the people who were cops? Mm. So, in the contract for being a cop, you sign your corpse away. And they and, can do whatever they want. And a guy named Murphy, played by Peter Weller, dies in the most horrifically brutal fashion ever on the job, and they decide, okay, great. We own his corpse. Uh, let's turn him into an unthinkable killing machine. And so they do. And they turn him into RoboCop. This awesome armored superhero who works for a corrupt police uh, 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 organization. And at first, yeah, he's stopping criminals. He's actually doing a really good job at it. But here's the thing. He is programmed to not arrest criminals if OCP likes them or if they work for OCP. Yeah, he's not allowed not allowed to investigate OCP yeah. employees. Yeah, which means that the people who run the show can get away with anything. They are above the law. 
Why? Because the law runs on money now. Society shouldn't purely run on money. It's a very specific commentary. I'd buy that for a dollar. Oh, yeah. Also, the the movie's depiction about future culture is not far off. (laughs) Have you seen reality television? The jokes that they make on RoboCop are not that far away from, like, the kind of shit that we actually shovel into our brains constantly. These opiates of the masses, the dumbing down. Of people and the lowering of expectations mm. and the lowering of uh, thought. People aren't thinking. Yeah, it's it's a mean spirited, cynical movie, but it is so pointed and smart, and violent, and cool. The violence is a big part of it. It is That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I think that violence actually calls attention to the fact that the American portrayal of violence in action movies mm. at the time and now is incredibly sanitized. When an American hero in an action movie kills a bunch of guys, usually they just go, ah, maybe a little puff of a puff of red. And yeah. then they go, ah, it's a good thing we're dead. We were bad guys. Right. And RoboCop, every time someone gets shot, a grenade goes off in their chest. <laughs> Let me see their heart explode. It's actually probably more violent than it is in real life, but he's making a point. This should not be fun. Yeah, it's really shocking. Yeah, the violence, sh- violence should shock you. Hmm. Violence should not be something we get used to or that we celebrate. It's amazing to see in RoboCop because, wow. But it's also gross hmm. and repugnant and reminds us that shooting people is bad. We shouldn't be doing that. I'm not saying there was never a situation in which it wasn't justified, but generally speaking, no one should be doing that. RoboCop is an incredible commentary on our culture, is an incredible commentary on uh, capitalist society, it's an incredible commentary on movies itself. RoboCop fucking rules. And it is one of my very favorite movies, period. Uh, it's one of the best films of the 1980s. It's yeah. uh, in that, not just in terms of its just visceral excitement, but in terms of uh, what it was saying about what was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you really want to know what Reagan's America was supposed to look like, RoboCop is definitely one of the films to watch. Watch that one back to back with They Live. Uh, oh, yeah. you'll, and you'll really get a good sort of science fiction yeah. portrait of a lot of uh, just con- the consumerism and uh, and laissez-faire capitalism run completely amok i realize that a lot of this list is probably 80s focused mm. i'm just gonna just admit to that <laughs> uh, it's it, it, it was a time when people were able uh, to make these kind of dystopian movies on a grander scale and yeah. so a lot of them really popped off the screen i'll say this i only have two films from the 80s on my list okay i have because uh, brazil two. is from the 80s and uh i guess one. i can get to my next one because that's also from the 80s i guess i only have three i guess i just right. i feel like I have a bunch of like on the periphery like late 70s early 90s all right yeah um, but uh, the next film I have is another comment on uh, the way media affects us. And this is a, not so much a, a dystopia so much as it is a commentary on how uh, the way we consume media hmm. will lead directly and immediately and quickly into uh, into a dystopia. Which is? And that is uh, David Cronenberg's Videodrome. Interesting. Uh, vi- I like it. Videodrome is a film about... Uh, TV broadcaster. He's a pirate TV broadcaster. Uh, he's played by James Woods, and he uh, has discovered this kind of rogue TV signal coming from somewhere on the planet. He doesn't even know where it's coming from, really. He's been using his pirate TV uh, signals to sort of bro- subtly broadcast smut throughout Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's discovered something called Videodrome, which is essentially just torture 24 hours a day. 
uh, like people are sort of like pushed into a wall of clay and beaten and electrocuted. And mm-hmm. he says that it's really, he watches some of it and says it's like really kind of mesmerizing to him. Yeah. It's low fi and, and yeah. I admit it, but there's something just, it's something just really pure and cinematic about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this of is course good cinema. He has no heart. He has no humanity no. whatsoever. And uh, he, he just goes knows on, it makes an impact and he, gets you. And he goes on a lot of talk shows and he t- uh, dis- discovers this weird kind of tech Marshall McLuhan type media philosopher guru named Brian Oblivion. (laughs) O hyphen or apostrophe Apostrophe Oblivion. Oblivion. And um, Brian Oblivion, he he, like, and his, his saying is uh, the cathode ray tube is the retina of the mind's eye. So it's kind of a meaningless phrase, but it's really evocative. And uh, how it's the kind of shit people were saying. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, when as media began to proliferate, a lot of philosophers and sociologists were wondering what the effect this would have on our brains. And David mm-hmm. Cronenberg's statement in Videodrome was, if you consume a lot of media, it's not that it's changing your mind, although it is doing that. What it's doing is revealing the types of minds that are going to react very positively to really manipulative imagery. Yeah. And how uh, this sort of Videodrome thing is actually... And, you know, this is a science fiction story, so there's this weird conspiracy about how it's like broadcasting signals into your brain and changing the way you think and mind warping you and making you part of this weird sort of elaborate media underground that's going to like set to take out other figures within the media underground. And it all feels very much like the ravings of a paranoid schizophrenic. Yeah. How there's they're beaming pressure out of the TV into my brain and making me do these weird things. Uh, and David Cronenberg is saying that's that the media itself is partially to br- to blame. Yeah. And the way we consume media is literally rotting our the, brains. The, the, to the, the point way we where, irresponsibly shovel it into our thought process. Yeah, and, yeah. and not really thinking about it or analyzing it mm-hmm. or concerning ourselves with what it's doing to our character. Yeah. Um, I think in the present in the media saturated age when everybody has a TV in their pocket and we're constantly watching movies and we're constantly concerned. You just touched your phone. I touched yeah. my phone, but not for a movie, not for a movie, but there's, there's, there we're, con- <laughs> we're sucking information into our faces constantly. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast right now. It's pouring into your ears <laughs> at this moment. And, we're giving uh, you all kinds of ideas. You want a Snickers? <laughs> Wouldn't you like a Snickers? You want a, Watch Videodrome. <laughs> I recommend you watch Videodrome on Betamax if you can. <laughs> it's the only uh, real way. It's the only real way to watch Videodrome. Uh, but yeah, he, the, the comment is, of course, that uh, oh, media consumption is kind of the great sin of the modern age and how yeah. we don't think about our media consumption and how we do it really kind of recklessly and how it's damaging the human character. By the way, this uh, is why we have critics. <laughs> That's to, literally why we have critics. So to, that to actually to question it, part yeah, to really kind of take a little bit more of a I hate to, I hate to say objective viewpoint because that's not what criticism is really. No, no, but no. But to take a step to, back, to, to think about it, I think yeah. is, is a little bit more accurate yeah. way. Not to, put to just it. not to just absorb everything that we're being told, not to turn off our brain, but to leave our brain on and think about it yeah. and talk about it. And I and I think uh, Videodrome is one of the most powerful films about that concept about how yeah. media is the thing that's going to lead us down the wrong path. I'm just not entirely convinced that the whole world in which they live is dystopian but at the same time well, if, I get it if you I look might, at the arc yeah. of the main character he starts yeah. in sort of just a, a regular home just yeah. something that's organized and clean and then by the end he's like literally living in a garbage dump yeah. with like a gun fused to his hand yeah I get it I, I, I think it I think it's a mm. little on the edge but it's still a great film yeah 
All right, I got two left. Uh, I have one left, so give me. All a right, two. I I wonder if this is on if this is your number one. Mm. Mine, mine's probably pretty predictable, but yeah. Is it can... Metropolis? It's not Metropolis. What? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm surprised you didn't put it on your list. Metropolis, everybody. Mm. Metropolis. Fritz Long's Metropolis, silent film mm. classic, uh, and it is kind of the template upon which all not just dystopian mm. cinematic uh, fiction is based off of, but most science fiction movies. Yeah. Oh, a lot. To hmm. Metropolis, it takes place uh, in a future, or perhaps an alternate present, uh, in which society is divided into the people who live above ground, the people who live below, people who live above ground, live in this incredibly, seemingly utopian society filled with uh, bacchanalia and frolics and Op- sex and opu- fun, opulence and and yeah. things. And if they do work, it's paperwork. It's fine. And the people who live below them, the people who are don't come machines, out very often, yeah. they're running the machines, and the machines are running on sweat and blood and death. And uh, yeah, it's about uh, a young man from the upper world who finds his way into the lower world and discovers, shit, this is hard. <laughs> what the shit? It would be like if Eric Trump just like had found his way into a... Into like a mining camp for a day and was actually forced into labor. And then when he was done, he was like, shit, I had no idea that, that arms can do that. Arms can like use a wow. Like now, now I want to see a remake of Metropolis <laughs> right? specifically about Eric Trump. Right. But uh, but uh, and and he realizes that um, this isn't fair. Mm. This is kind of arbitrary and shit. Meanwhile, his father is working with a, a scientist named Rotwang, or Rotvang, I guess. Rotvang, yeah. Rotvang, uh, to build a robot to replace a rabble-rouser amongst the poor. Because she's trying to teach them about how, hey, we're people. Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe we deserve dignity and shit. Hey, maybe like the people upstairs should be working with us instead of just telling us what to do and taking us for granted and treating us like shit. And so what Rothfine plans to do is to replace her with a robot and have her start a giant riot that will kill everybody and flood the sewers. It's the same story as the movie Ants, which we reviewed recently. Pretty close, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Ants, Ants lifted a lot of those plot points. Ants is not as good as Metropolis. No, it isn't. Can we agree with that? I think, yeah, I think that's 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 safe to say. Metropolis, I mean, it's, it sounds simple, and mm. it is, but it's also arguing that society is pretty simple if you boil it down to the haves and have nots uh but it is so captivatingly Mm. realized it is gigantic in a way that i think even modern movies don't always feel this gigantic because Mm. they're not as practical because they're not uh filled with as many extras i think as as metropolis has and also because there's something really stark about it It, Mm. it just feels like empty machinery and the people are the grease. Yeah. You know, it feels like, uh, uh, facile, shiny skyscrapers and the people are the gnats. It, there's something about it where it just says it, the world in which we live, the constructions that we have, the architecture, the machinery Mm. is taking up all the space. And whether we are ruling it or whether we are making it go, we're all kind of in service of it. Yeah. That's all yeah. society is, is a big machine. And the work should be divided a little bit more evenly, shouldn't it? 
It's a very angry, bitter movie, like most mm. of the movies that we're covering. Uh, and it holds up real, real well. Yeah. Uh, there's a restored cut of Metropolis, which is the most complete version that we have. It's it's billed as the complete Metropolis. Yeah, which it, isn't quite true, but a lot of Metropolis it's, it's was as, lost over the years. It's as complete as it gets right now. Yeah. No one's found any footage of Metropolis in a while. That version is great. That version really plays. That version flies by like it's well-paced. Mm. Um, I also recommend, if you want a weird experience, to check out the Giorgio Moroder version, nah. which is Metropolis. And this was from the 80s when we didn't have all the footage. So like parts of it are recreated through like stills. Uh, it's also a lot of it is tinted. In various mm. colors, which was actually very common in the silent era. People don't talk about that very much. Uh, but it's tinted and weird. And the music is by people like Pat Benatar and Queen. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's a really, it's one hell of an experience. It's not maybe the purest experience of Metropolis, but it's really cool. And mm. if you like Metropolis and we've never seen the Giorgio Moroder version, I do recommend it. It's Put it on at a party. Like, it's awesome. Yeah. When we can have parties again. Um, and then, okay, what's your number one? Uh, my number one is uh, is Planet of the Apes. Uh, hey! Can't, can't, why did that not even occur to me? <laughs> I had Conquest of the Planet of the Apes on my runners-up, and I forgot about, about the actual Planet, Planet of, the of the Apes. Planet of the Apes? Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah, uh, Planet, Planet of the Apes. Uh, oh my Planet God. of the Apes is one of those magical films that is absurd and ridiculous and funny and yet somehow really heavy and poignant at the same time. Yeah, they uh, never they never forget that having a whole civilization filled with apes is kind of absurd in yeah, some respects. It's, it's, it's a it's weird really image. It's a surreal experience. Yeah. And I, I think that's something a lot of the remakes have kind of forgotten because they can use special effects to make you know like actually animate real chimpanzees. Yeah. They, look, they, they look incredible. And yeah, they look great. Especially even the even the Tim Burton one with still makeup effects might God, the makeup effects are good in that. Some of the best makeup effects, I would say, in film history. In, Not in nominated remake. for an Academy Award for Best Makeup. An injustice. I think everyone assumed everyone else would vote for it, so mm -hmm. nobody voted for it. Yeah, that's my only theory. Nothing else makes sense. It's not a great film, but those are great looking apes. Uh, that's um, never stopped a film from winning best makeup before. Yeah, Nor Suicide Squad won. Norbit, I think, was nominated. No, it was I don't nominated, it won, didn't win. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was at least nominated. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, Planet of the Apes, uh, uh, directed by Franklin Schaffner in 1968, Eight. and um, co-written by Rod Serling. It was about a, tr a quartet of astronauts who go out into space. Time passes differently in space. They realize when they get back that uh, a lot of time will have passed, but then they fall into stasis right when they enter some sort of like hyperspace phenomenon in space and they end up landing on a planet at some point in the distant 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 future uh they, they actually their instruments say year i like to think that the year is unknown uh and they start wandering across the landscape they find that this planet is run by uh not by human beings who are actually mute uh sort of animals in this version of the world but uh intelligent speaking apes who wear clothes and keep the humans as slaves. It's, of course, a satire of society. You know, we're, we're kind of analyzing how things don't really work because everything's really topsy-turvy. Everything is run by ape people. Uh, and all of the satire is really dead on, and it's really uh, kind of jokey about it. But I think it's really... Uh, poignant as well and of course everybody knows the famous twist they put the last shot of the movie on the cover of the DVD box for God's it's sake it's just cultural uh, osmosis yeah, everyone at just this knows point, every, by now. everybody knows it was Earth all along and yeah. uh, and, and honestly I mean if you look at it like the, the new movies the, the, mm. the rebooted series 
they don't pretend it didn't start on Earth. Yeah, they're yeah. taking it in chronological order here, so they're just like, yeah, it's on yeah. Earth. It's we know, <laughs> you know, we know. Yeah. We're not gonna pretend it's a twist anymore. Yeah, it, it's the weird thing that people, a lot of people, don't really acknowledge about Planet of the Apes is that it's really kind of hypnotic in a way. Yeah, it it plays like a, a Saturday afternoon serial. Yeah, in, in sort of its its weird kind of bizarre adventure movie tropes, but at the same time, it it is kind of I don't, I'm not sure exactly if it's a like use of editing or something about the director's style, but yeah, it really is kind of hypnotic. The the apes are so weird yeah. that you find yourself leaning toward the camera, like kind of looking at them really closely, and kind of yeah. really pondering what I think Rod Sterling wanted you to ponder is. What difference is there really yeah. between an animal that is very close to being human yeah. and all of the shit we've come up with that we call society? Exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. And yeah. then again, and, and that's something that I, I remember people were still like, people still argue over evolution sometimes, mm-hmm. man. Like they just don't understand or don't get it or. Um, they think it runs counter to whatever belief system that they have. So, mm-hmm. and I remember there were still serious debates happening about this when I was a kid. So I imagine mm-hmm. in the '60s it was still pretty heavy. So the idea that apes could evolve into our society just as easily as we could have—it's mm-hmm. pretty bold in and of itself. Um, it's in, it's impeccably created. I actually like how mundane a lot of it is. It's not trying to wow you with its architecture. The oh. architecture is really kind of natural. It's, and, all, it's all like stone sculptures. And yeah, that sort of thing, it's yeah. it's built into the earth as well. They're, they haven't like their civilization hasn't started trying to conquer nature yet. Uh-huh. Um, which of course is one of the things that happened in the first place. You know, teenage caveman went there as well. But anyway. Um, it's an excellent movie. I should have put it on my list. Yeah. It's, that's all there is to it. It's, 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 it's brilliant. It's it holds, definitely my number it one. It plays as well today. It's exciting. Yeah. It is funny. Um, it's got everything. It's just one of those movies mm. that's just everything is going for it. It's as intelligent as it is entertaining. Mm. Um, and it's ridiculous that I didn't put it on my list, and I'm embarrassed now. Uh, as, as the sequels and remakes kind of went along, the, the first five films in the series, of the yeah. ones from the 60s and 70s, uh, really just sort of kept on playing up the satire angle. How uh, Mostly. I, I think... Uh, in, in the, I mean, the second one, there's like a, a race of underground psychic ghouls uh, that worship an atomic bomb. It's, the, the, the second one is crap. The second uh, one is a weird repetitive yeah. mess. Like, they couldn't get Heston back for the whole film, so they got a Heston lookalike yeah. to basically be Heston again. But but Heston's in, like, the, the beginning and the end. I know, it doesn't, it doesn't fly. The ending's weird and yeah. cool, but it doesn't work. Yeah, the, th- uh, the, the time travel one, the third one, mm-hmm. is surprisingly good like it holds up really yeah, and, good and that, that one is very much about consumer culture yeah. because it's about apes who find themselves on modern day earth and yeah. how they get distracted by things like booze and clothes and yeah. consuming things and when humans finally realize that the reason these apes became super intelligent is because humanity died out they start becoming inhuman to the apes mm. It's a dark movie, actually. Yeah, I think and, and it ends yeah. very darkly. Uh, I, I just think Con- Conquest is better than people give it credit for. It's cheaper than it should be. It's a very cheap it's, film, but it's also it's about cheaper, the initial ape uprising and yeah. the anger is palpable. Well, the the anger is palpable, but at the same time, it it's well, it's a madhouse, a madhouse because yeah. uh, the apes that are being led in the uprising are just regular apes. They're yeah. just being trained to shoot guns. It's insanity. Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's not it's, not intelligent apes that have been wronged. Mm-hmm. The animals that have been trained to fire guns. The, the timeline gets all fucked up because by the time you get to the fifth apes film, Battle for the Planet of yeah. the Apes, there are people uh, who remember that, but apes, all apes are already intelligent. Yeah, so, yeah, I appreciate that. At least in the rebooted series, they like. 
made it so that Caesar actually like gave the smart gas to all the apes. Right. And they all be smart. And also it spreads like a virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it it's just, in terms of like storytelling and then scientific I, explanation. I still maintain that Rise of the Planet of the Apes is the best of the new trilogy. It's a really good film. It's not uh, a dystopia, I, but it's I, really good. I would I would say it's Dawn, but that's me. Whatever. Um uh, this should have been on my list. It's a brilliant film and I and it, I'm embarrassed. But I, what is my number one is I do stand by it. I think it would still be my number one. Alright. I started with John Carpenter, I'm ending with John Carpenter, it's They Live. <laughs> of course it's They Live. They right. Live is a great motion picture. I, I, it, it, it is unassailable, I will not argue They Live. They Live, what I love about They Live is we've talked a lot about movies that take place in the future. Mm-hmm. I think what's really amazing about They Live is that it's a sci-fi film that argues that the present is a dystopia. And once we start looking at the present through the lens of sci-fi, we realize just how fucked up our present is. And again, this is, came out at the height of the Reagan era. This is considered one of the first political films of the Reagan era about mm. the Reagan era. And because while everyone was talking about how, hey, it's great, we all have money now. This is awesome. Hey, everyone, we're going to party like it's 1985. And it's going to be prog rock and new wave. And wow, Flock of Seagulls is weird here. Everyone here is poor and miserable. Mm. So it's about Rowdy Roddy Piper. He's really well cast. He's good in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a working stiff who's just drifting from town to town, trying to get work wherever he can in construction or whatever, and he ends up living in shanty towns while all the rich people that people are talking about in Reagan's America are taking up all the, the limelight. Uh, there is a movement of people trying to get people to see the world for the way it really is, man, and he doesn't really think about it. And then he realizes that all those people were hoarding sunglasses. Why were they hoarding sunglasses? He puts sunglasses on. And then the world turns to black and white, crystal fucking clear. And he realizes that everything he looks at isn't what he's looking at. Mm. When he sees a billboard with a sexy lady on it, the billboard doesn't say, try our cigarettes. The billboard says, marry and reproduce. His money doesn't say, in God we trust. His money says, this is your God. Every single facet of society Mm. is designed, according to They Live, and also the way life works, uh, to perpetuate itself and to keep people where they are. Because if we perpetuate... Most most damningly, he looks up at an ad and it just says, obey. Yeah. That's Mm. it. Mm. Like, society perpetuates itself. And if you live in a society and your place in a society is oppressed... Persecuted has fewer rights than anybody else. Then society perpetuating itself is dystopian. Mm. Society perpetuating itself is the problem. Yeah, and we need to change it. What I love about They Live, in addition to being an amazing movie, it's incredibly well filmed. Uh, John Carpenter was uh, filmed it in mega widescreen, where the frame is always full of stuff, so that if you watched it on a TV in the '80s and they cut off the edges, you were always missing part of it because part of the movie is saying the TV is terrible for you. <laughs> TV is an opiate. TV is just telling you what to think. Um, but uh, it's it's very well filmed. It's very excitingly filmed. Like Planet of the Apes, it's also funny. Uh, but it's arguing not about like, oh, in the future we should avoid this. It's saying like right now, this is happening right fucking now, right in front of our faces. And if we could just look at it the right way, mm. we'd see it and we would be compelled to do something about it. But we are constantly being told, don't look at it that way. What I find curious about something like They Live, and it's it's 
been rescued from the ash heap. Uh, yeah. It was kind of dismissed at the time. Some uh, some critics liked it. It got generally positive reviews. It wasn't a hit or anything. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was, uh, it was over, not considered John Carpenter's best film. Yeah, or nothing. like you, you, you wait a generation and all of a sudden it was sort of rescued. A lot of people said, no, no, this, this is actually a very important film. It's kind yeah. of a defining film of the era. And if you were to talk to John Carpenter... He would not say anything about the philosophy. I think he was such a workman that he mm-hmm. kind of inherently understood it. That well, I don't he think he wrote could, it. I mean, like it's he, based on a short story, but he. But I, yeah, I don't, and I think he has ideas about it. But I think he doesn't really want to talk about it in those terms. I don't. Th- I think John Carpenter is a filmmaker. I think people tend to think about John Carpenter as though all of this brilliance happened in his movie by happenstance. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. It's not the case. He's definitely a deep thinker, but I don't, when you when you talk to him, he's such a laid back dude. I don't think that he doesn't want to get into those discussions. Just because he doesn't want to talk to you about it doesn't mm-hmm. mean it's not there. Even if he wasn't consciously thinking about all of it. Clearly, it's there. There are through lines in his work. There are repeated themes mm. that come together. Oh, we talked earlier about how all of his movies have an apocalyptic angle. They're cynical films. He has ideas, and very rarely were they as clearly politically codified mm. as they were in They Live. And They Live is, I think, a masterpiece of science fiction cinema. I, I really do. I think it's defiant and mad and just and great. And I love it, and it is my pick for the best dystopian movie. I had trouble picking between my top four. All right. But I did end up picking They Live. All right. Um, all right, so let's, uh, real fast, let's mention some honorable mentions. Uh, in terms of uh, certain kinds of sciences leading to class divisions, I think uh, Andrew Nichols' film Gattaca yep. really puts that in into place. Also, uh, my, also my runners-up. Th- this is very much about sort of the echoes of the atomic bomb, but uh, Akira... Is, yeah. is a really terrific film about a dystopian society and sort of building technology on uh, sort of the scars left behind by technology. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the way uh, a government and its lowest uh, lowest common denominator are actually really kind of chummy and uh, mm. agents of one another, Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange yeah. really puts that into stark relief. I... I it's not a great film, but I like Francois Truffaut's uh, film version of Fahrenheit 451. Really? It's, 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 it's a little bizarre, but I do like All it. Right. Um, anybody who's ever turned 30 has seen Logan's Run? <laughs> you'll get jokes about it either you'll, way. You'll, you will get jokes about Logan's Run when you turn 30. Uh, Death Race 2000 was on my runner's yeah. list. I'm very, very fond of the film version of High Rise. Oh, yeah. I almost picked that one, too. About yeah. how, yeah, this sort of uh, notion of high-tech home uh, environments yeah. uh, can lead to society's downfall very quickly. Uh, oh, There's a really cheesy um, action film that borrows a lot from mm. uh, dystopian fiction is actually not very revolutionary into itself, but it did stand out as unique for its budget at the time. And that was Equilibrium. Oh, I like that <laughs> I one like a lot. Equilibrium. That's a very entertaining film. It, it's a, a it's very entertaining. entertaining film. Again, not the smartest movie. No, it's basically but, THX one one three eight with a ton of amazing fights. Yeah, they they invented their own kind of martial art for it, yeah. and the, that's really exciting. The guy, it's a martial art, you know, like martial arts. Like there's some martial arts that incorporate swords mm. or scythes or stabs. Uh, they decided, well, why isn't there a martial art for guns? So they created uh, gun kata, gun kata, an actual like gun based martial art. And you're gonna see like Christian Bale fight. Tay Diggs with gun kata and it's 
awesome. It's pretty awesome. It's so fucking so, cool. The movie's kind of dumb, but it's so fucking it's, cool. It's kind of dumb, but it's cool. I I, I have a, a soft spot for Equilibrium. Yeah, me too. Um, uh, Escape from New York was also on my list. Yeah. Um, they Live was also on my runners-up. THX 1138 was also on my list. I like A Boy and His Dog, uh, but yeah. you said that's more of a post-apocalypse well, thing. Well, we, we I, can I disagree it, on that. I think it folds in because it actually does have like an underground society of haves who yeah. are preying on the have-nots. It's the Morlocks Eloy thing just sort I of just, inverted. I um, just don't think it's the focus, but yeah, I can, I can and, see it. And uh, tell me if you think this is a dystopian movie hmm. the lobster yes it is okay i think it's fair to say yeah. all right because the, the lobster takes place in this world where uh i guess it's a future world but it is maybe an alternate yeah. to the present where you have to pair off with a romantic mate mm-hmm. and the only way to make sure you have a romantic mate is to have like little superficial things in common that's it yeah it's all and, arbitrary. And, it, and if you don't have a romantic partner, according to the version of this world, you are forcibly transformed into an animal. Yeah, you're removed from society if yeah. you don't conform to our ideas of love mm. and monogamy. And uh, yeah, I think it's I think it is definitely I, a dystopian I, I film. I really dig the lobster. It that's is great. very good. It's it's it's. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan, but I mm. I love its inclusion here, and I think that's really really okay. fair. Um, okay, um, some of my runners up. Let's see what we got here. Uh, the Matrix is really really cool. It's cool. Yeah. It's, uh, you know what? It's better than Equilibrium. I'll it, say that. It is. Think, it is. I, Equilibrium I, I, is a big Matrix knockoff, I, but it's good. I feel like I don't need to recommend The Matrix. No, I'm, I'm, it needs to be said. Yeah. Uh, Demolition Man is a fun dystopia because it's the exact opposite of regular dystopia. Because yeah. everyone's really super nice to each other. And how much would that suck? Uh, uh, Orson Welles is The Trial. I don't think gets enough I credit. I haven't seen the trial. It's underrated. It's like a lot of his movies from later in his career. It's really choppy. You can tell it got taken away from him. And uh-huh. I don't think the ending quite works. But uh, it's actually, as far as I'm concerned, I think it's one of the best Kafka films that's ever been made. Okay. It really gets that symbol of vague persecution. It's certainly better than Kafka. I've actually never seen Kafka, but okay. uh, the trial is very, very good, and I do like, recommend you, it. You know how all of the all of Kafka's movies are about sort of like this big central bureaucracy that the main character can just never get to. There's always something yeah. staying. I mean, in stories, his way. not movies. Or sto- yeah. Sorry, stories. Yeah. Uh, in Kafka, we get to go into that building. Oh, great! It's like no, that, this that's, is the whole that's point. The point, Soderbergh. Jesus, you, buddy. Have you read Kafka? Jeez. Okay, uh, moving on. Moving on. I also had Akira on here. I had Idiocracy on here. Uh, both the Battle Royale movies. The first one gets all the credit because it's amazing, but the sequel seems increasingly resonant as time goes on as we realize that the survivors of this world where kids are forced to kill each other in order to keep society in check and the kids rebel against that and how the government turns other kids against the people who are actually working in their favor mm-hmm. it's a little smart and people give it credit for it. i just I, think it's just a mention i didn't know there was a sequel there was <laughs> it's, it's better than people oh, yeah. give it credit for all instead right. of be going to an island where all the kids are going to kill each other the survivors of the first film have become terrorists against the government and yeah. all of the new class is responsible for killing them Oh, that's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. it's it's not as good, but it's yeah. neat. Um, yeah. Luke, I'll feed you in a minute, buddy. I think I saw the first Battle Royale too late in my life. Mm. It's like, oh, I, like if I saw it, seen that when I was in college or in my 20s, but I saw yeah. it when I was like nearly 40 years old. It's like, this yeah. this isn't fun anymore. I had a Clockwork Orange. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, District 9 uh, is an excellent film oh, yeah, that absolutely could have made on my list very, very easily. Uh, let's see what I got here. Uh, here's a dumb movie, but I like it. In Time. 
<laughs> in Time is a dumb movie. I agree. But I also really, really like it. It's the idea that uh, it's in Wait, the isn't future. Isn't also an Andrew Nichol film? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's in the future, and uh, the economy has been replaced. Instead of getting money, you get time. You get time added to your death clock. Yeah. You everyone a death has a... clock in your forearm. Yeah. You see, like, numbers blinking on there. And, and the rich people have, like, millions of years. They will never die. And poor people l- work today in order to make enough minutes to make it to tomorrow. Yeah. Like, oh, do I have, can I afford the 10 seconds to buy a cup of coffee? Mm. No. No, you gotta, <laughs> gotta, gotta, gotta get to the yeah. get the pay line so I can get my minutes It's to, a weird, silly movie, but it deserves to be seen, I think. It's an <laughs> odd film. It doesn't, I'm not really sure what the, I mean, I see what the metaphor is, yeah. but I'm not really sure how it, if it plays out. Or I think it plays fun. Uh, let's see, here's a movie, I'm curious if you think this is a dystopian movie or not. Pleasantville. It's not. You don't think so? No. I think they're making an argument that it is. I think that's the point of the movie. I, I think it's it's um, the are arguing that uh, the uh, the kind of conservative ideal that we got through 1950s media was wrong, and that there's more freedom to be had in the modern age. But I I wouldn't yeah. say okay. Pleasantville. It's it's like no. I, I wouldn't say that's, that's why it's on my runners up. It was something I considered. and I'd put it on there. Uh, let's see. Snowpiercer. I think is at least worth an honorable mention here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wall-E came very close to my list. I love Wall-E I a like lot. Wall-E a lot too. Uh, District B thirteen. It's a lot of fun, but it's not a great movie. <laughs> it's a lot of fun that, that, though. It's great action. That, movie. That's in the Equilibrium camp. Yeah. Uh, also another movie that very very closely came to my list. Silent Running. Which is, I haven't seen Silent Oh, it's yeah. so good. And so we're actually going to get to that on episode right, zero yeah. at some point. Uh, Bruce Dern plays a guy who is responsible for tending the last human forest after we've destroyed uh, our, mm-hmm. our ecology. And the last human forest is on a space station. Hmm. And it's just him and a couple of robots trying to tend the forest before the bureaucracies say that the forest isn't worth maintaining anymore. Hmm. Um, it's bitter, but it's really, really good. Uh, speaking of George Romero earlier, Land of the Dead is one of his more on-the-nose <laughs> dystopian allegories, that, but that it's was, a lot of fun, and it gets really underrated. At that point in his career, he like sort of drank his own Kool-Aid, yeah. where people said, oh, the first uh, Night of the Living Dead, that's a really powerful political allegory. Yeah. He has said in interviews, no, I just cast who I cast. Yeah. He wasn't really thinking about it. He said he would have leaned it, into yeah. it more if it had actually occurred to him. Yeah, and but, I think, and uh, by the time he made Land of the Dead, he's like, oh, no, man, these these were all meant to be like these big allegories. It's like... That said, no. that said, Land of the Dead's pretty fucking cool. I think that one's a good movie. Um, the Day of the Dead is the best of the series. I agree. Uh, let's see what we got here. A couple more uh, left. Uh, oh, I lost my place thanks to you. You bastard! <laughs> you, um, Harrison Bergeron, I mentioned, was on yeah. my runners-up. Um, and um, I guess that's it. <laughs> okay. That I... I Okay. Those are, these are all great. Oh, films, uh, and so. uh, the Blade Runners. The Blade Runners are at least worth a mention. Oh, I, think I was they hoping g- we'd get through without. I think they have Blade a better Runner. image of the way a dystopia would look than they do about the actual dystopia itself. Mm. I think Blade Runner twenty forty nine actually does a better job at getting into the meat of the what's wrong with society. Uh, but I think for the most part, they're better as stylistic exercises than they are as movies. Mm. Um, anyway, like, he, you know, he might be a replicant. So. <laughs> <laughs> What does that change about the movie? <laughs> yeah. 
what would that imply? <laughs> um, I, I still really like him, but right. uh, and I like him way more than Whitney does. But uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't make a list for a reason. Not a fan of those movies. At anyway, all. that is the Iron List for this week. Uh, coming in soon, in the next week or so, we'll put another poll up on our Patreon page, Patreon.com/slash/criticallyacclaimed/network, uh, where you can pick the topic for next month's Iron List. It will also be big and sprawling and long and ridiculous. Um, also, check out our Patreon. We made a few changes. Uh, we now added uh, a reward where we can make a personalized podcast for you uh, based on whatever you want, really. Mm. I mean, some limitations uh, uh, some some limitations apply, yeah. but mostly we'll just make whatever podcast you want. We'll make it just for you. Uh, we got that going. We also have a new goal where if we make twice as much as we're making now, which we may never do, mm. but we have to set a goal. <laughs> if we make twice as much as we're making now, in addition to being able to afford better equipment, better sound, better, maybe even start doing some video, we're going to do a new epic project in which we review every single episode of Batman, the animated series that includes the crossovers, that includes the movies, that includes the spinoffs. It will take up most of our lives, but we'll do it for you. Because we love you. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we're we're really grateful for for all of the support a lot of people have given us over the years. A lot of people have sticking 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 stuck with us over the years. And, yeah, uh, we really especially appreciate now that times are really hard. We yeah. extra appreciate it. We really extra appreciate yeah. it, and we're we're glad you're here with us. We're glad we can provide content for you, and we're glad you're here to hear it. Yeah. And we have and and whether or not we ever reach that goal, we I never thought we'd reach the other one. Maybe we'll never reach this one, but uh, we do have a ton of exclusive content over there: Star Trek podcasts, Firefly podcasts. Oscars podcast Disney podcast ton of stuff all exclusive to various tiers of our Patreon we hope you check it out if you can't fair enough follow us on Twitter we're at Critic Acclaim I'm at William Bibiani I'm at Whitney Seibold uh, and uh, yeah thank you you're cool and we really really like you and I forget how we end episodes mm. of the Iron List I don't know if we ever actually mm. figured out ending I'll, to the Iron I'll, List I'll just say this please the future is bright that's kind of nice yeah